and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'll be really quick up the top here. Um, my guest today is Jeremy Kenner. You might have heard me talk about uh, this podcast if you've listened to the Annabelle Crab, D. Madigan, or uh, Alice Fraser podcast, which were the three previous ones here on Philosophy. And if you have not, if you're new to the podcast, I definitely recommend to go and check those ones out. Um, really great run of guests with some really interesting insights. I've got a brilliant guest next week, Osha Ginsberg, doing the show, and we had a brilliant chat here in the podcave yesterday, and uh, I'm going to have to have a listen back to it and edit a few things out because uh, Osha was so generous and so uh, let us go so deep into some areas of his life that have been difficult for him that uh, I kind of said to him at the time, just say it all and I'll take anything when we go too far. And there's a couple of things, but uh, mostly he's going to let us leave it all in and I think you're going to really love that podcast. But I don't like to talk too much about them before you actually listen to them. Um, I had thought over the years that I might do some quick summary of like who Jared is up the top here and you know give you an introduction into how I know Jared. But I like people to be able to just listen to the podcast, uh, listen without prejudice, I guess, as George Michael would say, and uh, make up your own mind. But I would say this about Jared. He's a brilliant guy and he's doing some brilliant things. So if you enjoy today's podcast and you think that you would not like to know more about him, I think that is something that you would very much enjoy and you will be inspired and interested in uh, what he has done. I hope you enjoy this podcast today. I'm just going to keep this pretty quick, a uh, couple of quick plugs. If you enjoy this podcast and you want to help out, uh, rate it on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Uh, keeps it up the top of the charts and lets people find out about it, which is always very nice. Uh, and the other thing is uh, that I am doing some shows if you're in Sydney. Uh, if you're in Sydney, I'm doing my political will uh, kind of politics rant. It's somewhere between 70 and 90 minutes of me ranting about Australian politics. We did three of them last week. Very fun. And uh, got another four this week. Friday and Saturday, regular shows are already sold out, but there's some tickets to Thursday night if you get in quick. And uh, we had an extra show six o'clock on Saturday. Justin Hamilton will be, doing, will be doing support for those shows. Becky Lucas is doing support for the rest, and she's been absolutely crushing it. Uh, definitely a name on the Australian comedy scene to keep looking out for, Becky Lucas. She's absolutely fantastic. So um, you can come and check those out. Adelaide, uh, Fire at Will, my new show, is already on sale. Um, Melbourne, Fire at Will is going to go on sale very soon. Sydney, it looks like we'll probably do the Opera House again, which would be brilliant in April next year with the brand new show Fire at Will as well. So uh, I'll give you more details about that when I know those details. And of course, it'll be going to the Brisbane Comedy Festival as well. It's just not quite on sale yet. So uh, there you go. That'll do. That's enough plugs. Uh, I've got my final episode of Gruen to tape tonight. So uh, if you're in Australia and you watch Gruen, uh, Wednesday night, final episode of Gruen for the year. So uh, if you could check that out as well, that'd be brilliant. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this today's podcast and uh, hope you're all well. Cheers. Welcome to Willosophy. I am Will Anderson. Well, it's called Willosophy with Will Anderson, but it seems weird for me to say that at the start because I am Will Anderson. But now I've said it heaps of times, so that's made it even weirder. Uh, the podcast starts always like this. I have a guest here, and this is the first question. I told you off air that I would ask you a question that you know the answer to, but I'd like to ask this question anyway. Who are you? Uh, I'm Jared McKenna, and... Uh Oh, I thought the first question was going to be an easy one. Like, <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I, like, I mean, I, yeah. there is no correct answer to that. Whatever you say is the correct answer. But it is amazing sometimes when I just ask someone who they are, how much they struggle with that idea. How would you describe yourself to people if you if you know if you just had to give the the quick pricey version of Jared McKenna? What is that? I guess in relation to others. So I'm I'm Tyson's dad. Um, I'm I'm Teresa's hubby. Uh, um, I live here at First Home Project, so I'm a neighbour to a bunch of uh, amazing crew here. Uh, I'm a pastor at West City. Um, I currently head up 
common grace, which is kind of like get up for God botherers. Um, <laughs> is so, that your slogan? That's, that's, the, that's the unofficial. Uh, we, we got a couple of unofficial slogans. One is uh, more like get Jesus. Up, like really higher up to heaven. Yeah, that, that's that's right. how high you can get. <laughs> While bringing heaven down, something like that. that. So, um, uh, yeah, another unofficial slogan is uh, more like Jesus, less like jerks. Um, although we we had pushback in when we raised that with different groups. Uh, they thought that we were calling them jerks. And we've got, no, it's a confession. We've been jerks. So uh, um, how's that for a start, Will? Yeah, that's good. I like it. Now, well, because it's interesting to me because you're the first person I've had on the podcast that has defined themselves through their relationship to other people. So that's that's an really? interesting that's an interesting place for me to start. We'll get wow. to your philosophy in a second, but I actually just want to talk about that for a start. Hmm. Like where does that come from? The idea that you know who you are is defined by who you are to other people. Yeah, I, I think for all of us we're we're products of stories. Some of us are more conscious of the the stories um, that uh, name us, um, but I, I am because uh, you know the story of a immigrant from Ireland, um, Bernie McKenna, who his seven brothers and four sisters all migrated to, to Perth. Hang on, seven brothers, four sisters? Yeah, real Catholics? Irish Catholic family. Yeah. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Bingo. Um, uh, wow. And, and Faye Saul. Where was he in the in that lineup, by the way? Was he like... Second uh, out. Okay. Second right. out, yeah. Um, so, I have 27 first cousins on that side of the family. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, um, we... You know, can have a cricket game between ourselves. It's great. There's like um, lots of advantages to um, the, the McKenna clan. Uh, Mum's side, of the yeah, I, I think all of us are products of you know, um, Mum's side of the family. Mum's um, maiden name is Saul. Uh, it's obviously a Jewish name, uh, Russian Jews, but uh, not practicing for a couple of generations from country Victoria. Um, oh, country Victoria, really? Yeah, not down your way, up okay. Swan Hill way, so oh. Lake Boga, actually. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah up on the, the border there. Um, uh, yeah, I always find it interesting, like, you, you hang out um, in remote Aboriginal communities and, you know, we're talking and people ask questions like, what do you do and where you're from? But they're quite evasive questions in that, like, in that in those settings, you, you tell something of yourself and it's an act of vulnerability where you invite somebody to give some of their story. Um, uh, it's so easy for us to be defined in terms of like the stuff we do instead of who we're a part of and who are our peeps, like who, who, um, who names you and forms you and how much of that are you conscious of and you've chosen in a way that goes, I want to deal with the shadow side of that and the stuff that um, needs to obviously... Um, <laughs> be transformed otherwise it's going to devour me and eat me alive and what are the stuff there that um is worth celebrating and stuff that um worth connecting to and, and actually learning from okay so but the in- thing that is interesting to me about the way that you describe yourself and it's because i have a theory that everybody is a million different people you re- mm. i mean i the, if i try to tell you who i am right or mm. you know define me by my job or what my name is or where i'm from mm. like yes that is a, a version of who i am but the version of me talking to you is not the version of me talking to my girlfriend at home or the version of me talking to the lady at the shops who always forgets my yeah, name yeah. or the version of me having a professional conversation with somebody at work. They are all very different me's through the perspective of that other person. I find Even it somewhat though, comforting, Will, that the lady at the shop forgets your name as well. Like That gives hope to the rest of us oh, that she, it's not... She knows my girlfriend's name and she knows the name of both of the dogs. Like, I bring in the dogs, she knows both the dogs' name and she like every time she asks me my name, 
Yeah. And, and then she's like, she's confusing. She's like, it's like she deliberately, I'm that person. She has like a block in the head because everybody in the neighborhood she knows. It's like one of those sort of corner Maybe shops. it's reverse discrimination. I, I've got a mate who, when we first met, I, I was getting married. And because he's a professional rugby player, didn't invite him along because I didn't want him to think that like I was like, and now looking back, I was like, and I totally discriminated against him because he is someone in the eyes of others, which is like the same as treating people who aren't someone in the eyes of others. Maybe it's it's that kind of thing she's she's dealing with. Maybe. She's going home and like re-watching Gruen over right. and over and over again. It got him and again. Going, got him again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll teach Will some humility. <laughs> How's the dogs? Uh, <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah. But it'd be great if she had a dossier on my entire life. If you <laughs> went right. into her office, it looked like the end of one of those stalker films. That's right. And she's got photos and things joining them, knows the name of everything. Like a 14-year-old with One Direction, she's got Will all over yeah. the walls. and Yeah, but she just refuses. Like, yeah, it is an interesting thing because you are a different person to all those people. What is the common thing that you think that you take through all those? If, if all those people said one thing of you, what do you think it would be? Is there a common thing or is there things that are just more important to each of those relationships that are not important to the other ones? Oh, I don't know. It's so hard because like we all engage in self-propaganda all the time. Like even in this interview, like um, I, I want people to think a certain thing uh, of me for a variety of different reasons, which are, are both good and bad. It's like our, our Facebook photos. No one puts a photo of themselves when they're first woken up in the morning. It's like when you accidentally um, uh, press uh, FaceTime and you see yourself and it's like you're horrified and like, ah, like. That's not the photo you ever put up. You don't screenshot the accidental FaceTime photo. It's a you know angle that has been, and we all do that, yeah. Like we all engage in self propaganda um, to uh, you know manage. I mean, whether it's Thomas Merton as a philosopher would call it the like the false self, or um, it's it's our um, ego self, our self constructed self that that we give uh, to the world. So they'll probably tell you a bunch of that kind of stuff, which makes me sound great right like talk about uh, awards or stuff i do and all the rest um but who i think we really are is who we are when no one's watching um all, all the stuff that uh you know what do any of us do with our pain that we want no one else to know because it's just like everybody else and we're so ashamed of it um what's the ways we treat those we we like the least because i think that actually tells us what we really think of ourselves and humanity and a larger picture um uh, so I, I hope people would catch me being myself and a kind of self that, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to do a deliberate eff- effort to confess in public and do good in private rather than the other way around, which I think is um, less lo- helpful for us. I love it. I love what you're saying there because to me, like, you know, when you stumbled on upon it with like that Facebook thing, I do, do honestly believe one of the problems we have at the moment in the world is that not only do we want to be happy ourselves Mm. but we want to be happier than other people that's right (laughs) but other people aren't as happy as we think they are yeah and that's this we're in this horrible loop of trying to like you know we want our life to be like that person who's posting all those glamorous photos on facebook of their glamorous life but that's all we're seeing we're seeing this version of their life that isn't their life yeah and we feel bad because we're not measuring up to this life that they're also not yeah. you know, having or measuring up. To totally. It. That if, if it wasn't um, for the support of other people, I'd struggle to get out of bed this morning. No one shares uh, that. Or if they do, they do it in ways that bleed over other people instead of like share it in ways that actually go, hey, we're all in this together. Or, um, hey, I would have gone uh, back to that, which I know is destroying myself and others. And like in terms of 
who I can be for the world. Like um, I'm going back to that, like a dog goes back to vomit and um, all, all of us do that kind of stuff. And it's terrifying how fragile we all are. Like, do, do you think that the reason that sometimes that we don't help, and this is something that I want to talk about more later, but um, do you think that sometimes the reason that we don't help, you know, that kind of, uh, um, you know, the standard we walk by is the standard that we accept, you know, mm. and the, I, I sold the big issue, uh, mm. like, uh, just to help out one day. It was yeah, like one yeah. of those things where they got people in. I used to write for the big issue and they said, hey, yeah. can you come and do this thing? And I stood in the financial district in Sydney and my lasting memory from that day is that people, you're invisible. Yeah. Like people won't even yeah. look you in the eye. Yeah. And I wasn't the guy selling the big issue. I yeah. was the guy with the guy selling right. the big issue that was meant to be <laughs> making sure that I'm the celebrity looked. promoting the big issue right. so people actually see people who are otherwise And invisible. they're not even looking at me. Yeah. I've now got yeah. the big issue sellers invisibility like ring around me as well. Which is worse. Like they talk about Stockholm syndrome of people who have been like kidnapped and all the rest and they start to identify with the people who have kidnapped them because to be invisible is actually to be worse than to be seen and to be seen in like a bad light at least you know what's coming at least you know what to expect at least um i i think whether it's um um uh like somebody who gets written off as a junkie or um somebody who uh hasn't really chosen but sex work is their profession because of lack of choices like um uh, the reason why such people often threaten us so much is because we have to look at our own pain and some of us are um, fortunate enough to have more um, middle class acceptable ways of hiding how problematic we are that um, uh, so in instead of um, uh, like breaking into homes like uh, we're um, selling homes and like in, investing in things that we know are destroying the earth at the cost of the poor but it's all acceptable when people pat us on the back and praise us for it um, and that's that's a hard thing to you know it, it's like the AA stuff that we were talking about um, b- before like the first steps admitting we have a problem and the difficult thing with admitting we have a problem is that we have to admit we're part of the problem like we're, we're addicted to fossil fuels that like i wonder if my great-grandchildren will go yeah sure great-granddad did some good stuff you know he drove a, drove a car though like seriously he drove a car how can you hold him up as an example for anything because he and i'm like oh my like I mean, but absolutely. I mean, like, you know, I, I hope that, like, you know, the people who came and saw my show in Perth walked away with some positive messages. But I flew here on a fucking plane. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, well, it's at least, well and at least you're to- flying to do comedy. <laughs> well, how do you think I feel when I, I fly and, like, um, we're going to talk about climate justice issues. Uh, l- l- let me tell you about, and then I'm going to go home on a plane. Like, well, I, I did have like five years where I didn't fly on planes because of that kind of, you know, be the change you want to see kind of stuff. And then realize, well, it's not about me changing my light bulbs or us stopping driving cars. It's actually big corporations that mean that like even if we all do um, start composting and changing our light bulbs and driving Prius and riding our bike instead of taking the car, we still have to do the, with the addiction to fossil fuels. But all of us are like that, Will. Like, and that's why um, these icons of... Um, pain in society the reason why well um philip berrigan put it like this um the poor tell us who we are and the prophets tell us who we can be so we hide our poor and we kill our prophets um no one wants to look at their stuff 
It's a, it's an interesting question to me, that idea, though. Of, we were talking before, we, we, we were having some uh, lunch, and we, I was talking about my vegetarianism, but the mm. fact that, you know, realistically, if I wanted to save animals, I wouldn't have got a new dog because my dog <laughs> eats much more meat than yeah. I ever ate, you know. Yeah. And we were just talking about that idea of, like, my philosophy towards my vegetarianism is that I don't need to eat meat. Like, you know, yeah. that I can live a healthy life and I enjoy not eating meat and I just don't really miss it that much. It's not that much of a sacrifice. And it's like... You know, take as much as you need, but pr- try to take no more. Mm. Now, in regards to your work and stuff, you're like, well, if I am going to fly all this way, like, I might as well say something important as well. Right. Like, sometimes people are like, you know, like your Andrew Bolts of the world would be like, look at these hypocrites talking about, you know, the world, but still flying around in their planes would be his argument. And he's like, well, what about the people who are flying around in the planes who would done fuck all with the voice they have? Point the finger at them first. At yeah. least. Bolts articles about me have been criticizing other stuff, but I'm sure when he finds out that. Um, yeah, but, I, I mean, you, a, a, but moral, featured, no, morality no, no, no. is. Have you featured in Andrew Bolt columns? Not by name, but yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, okay. The um, uh, priests and pastors being arrested in politicians' offices, like the problem with yeah. He I wondered really- if you got pointed out specifically because you look like the sort of person that he wouldn't like. I mean, look at you, you you're pro refugee, trying to look after the most vulnerable. You've got dreadlocks, yeah, like a, a hippie. I can, I would have thought you did, right. Yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah, but I mean, like the the Bolt thing is interesting because morality in itself becomes another addiction. Yeah, because morality is so often actually about looking sideways right. and comparing ourselves to... So, I get to feel morally superior because I'm not Andrew Bolt or I'm, I'm not Reclaim Australia. I'm not Pauline Hanson with her, like, outrageous and horrific Islamophobia. And so, it's like, hey, I, I don't need to do anything. And I actually think that's the importance of finding our stories in, in larger stories and larger communities that can actually... Um, uh, hold up the mirror in such ways that don't stop it, you're a hypocrite, but go, yeah, us too. How can we actually hold that stuff well, together? And, not just and- us too, me first. I yeah, mean, it's something yeah, with yeah. this podcast. I mean, this episode we're recording, we're recording because I, I'm over here in Perth and it was a good opportunity for me to come out here and see what you're doing here, but, you know, to see you and do this. But it won't go up for a few weeks because mm. uh, what I'm trying to do with the podcast now is have an equal amount of women and men on the podcast. Yeah, so it's not every week, like, woman, man, woman, man, but yep. I try to, over a period of time, make sure that I'm getting, you yeah. know, like, at least, you know, an equal amount of voices in that regard because I realise it's fine for me to be on stage talking about feminism or yeah, yeah. But if I'm not in something that I actually have a whole control over, yeah. you know, which is my podcast, yeah. I, I can literally control, well, I will, you know, talk to an equal amount of men and women. Mm-hmm. And then once I'm done with that, like, I mean, not done with that, but once I feel like I've made that a thing that I do, then I go, well, what else is this podcast missing? Yeah. What other voices yeah, am yeah, I totally. not hearing here? Yeah. And what other voices should be represented? And, you know, like, I, I think about it, I'm like, I'm constantly critical of the approach that uh, Australia has to our Indigenous people. Mm. But honestly, if you ask me a whole bunch of questions about our Indigenous people, mm. I think my knowledge would also drop off very quickly, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah, before I sort of point the finger, you know, maybe it's my responsibility to learn more myself and, yeah. like, you know, share those stories. I find it fascinating, um, uh, particularly maybe with the kind of people who uh, 
would warm to where we're coming that from. That said, we are all morally better than Andrew Bolt. So let's not. <laughs> I just want to say you can still feel better than that. So <laughs> I, I, I'm on the, the record. I think it was an interview with the ABC is saying that I don't think I'm morally better than the Prime Minister. And I, I honestly, like when, when I go into the prison system uh, here and whether it's visiting or running workshops on what we do with our violence, um, and you're dealing with people who are in protection block because um, uh, not just domestic violence, but they've actually taken someone's life. Like you, you look at the like um, just like horribly tragic way in which um, people don't know how to deal with their pain that they end up killing the one who is closest uh, to them. And it's, it's, it's a hard thing to go, yep, that's just like me. But I, I really think like if... Um, if I didn't go to the schools that I went to and had the kind of like, um, how different are my stories to one of the most confronting things for me is I went back with my dad, I was speaking in London and so, um, I was speaking, uh, in Chicago with Cornell West actually, which was phenomenal. Um, and, uh, London a week later and dad actually came over flew and we just spent some time in Ireland and in Northern Ireland where, um, my dad was born and went to the monastery my dad was a part of because my dad was once a... Uh, a monk. Um, right. It, it's not part of everybody's story, right? Like, so uh, going to. <laughs> um, obviously, not still a monk because I'm no, here. Yeah. But, former um, monk. Former monk. That's I right. I was a monk um, for a while. Yeah. I went through a monk period. I went, I went through that monk period. A lot period. of guys were into the monkeys. Yeah. I was into monks. I yeah, was a yeah. monk. You went through the punk period? No, yeah. a monk period. Yeah, that's monk. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was one of the original monks. Yeah, that's what, the clash? No, no, no. <laughs> like the Cistercians. Oh, right. Yeah, cool. Like. <laughs> kind of different jam. We were more chanting, yeah, yeah. silence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, old, <laughs> monk rock. More old school. Yeah. Uh, and one of the confronting things is staying in uh, Ardoin, where my dad's family um, is in Belfast, and seeing like um, you know graffiti on the walls in the neighbourhood where a family is. And these are people who have the same build as me, look like me, same age as me, and um, you know written on the walls is um, the war never ended. Join the real IRA. And understanding the amount of disenfranchisement that comes where um, your identity becomes, uh, you you can't get work, you're discriminated against, the rest of Northern Ireland has moved on economically and is joining in the European Union, but here are you still trapped in the ghetto and your only identity is in a, a war that apparently won but Sinn Féin are now wearing Amani suits and and like where are you in all this because you're still unemployed you're you're still living and uh, people join these like you know groups that you know Margaret Thatcher called terrorist groups like um and that's um it's confronting to go oh my goodness if my story was just like a couple of degrees different this is my story I'm I'm exactly the same. And it's an inter- well, that's an interesting perspective on what's happening here with like the radicalization of yeah. like Islam- Islamic youth. Now, yeah. I don't know how much it's happening. I'm not an expert on the topic, but there's obviously stories about it and there's been mm. some incidents in the news and stuff like that. But the thing that I always come back to is if you're constantly being made felt like you don't belong and that's you right. don't deserve to be part of yeah. like, a society, and there is like all this evidence. That, you know, like, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, but I you, I could build a compelling case if I needed to build the case that Australia hated Muslims and hated you. And the reason you didn't have a job was because you're a Muslim. And mm. the reason you'll never be part of this society is because you're a Muslim. I'm not saying that that is 100% the case in Australia. In fact, I don't think it is. Mm. But you could easily build a pretty good argument using some readily totally. available evidence to make that. Yeah. 
and you know and i think that we don't play that like we don't like if you have a group of people in an area who don't feel like they're part of the society and have no way to become part of that society then they are always susceptible to those messages or to somebody saying well it's someone else's fault here it is and come to this and we will help you yeah right? i did this talk earlier in the week with um uh, scott ludlam and uh, a professor from the university of western australia where he talked about go back where you came from and the first was it rochelle or raquel she was sure. um this uh western suburbs of sydney like um, hated on incredibly across social media because of her racist views and everything like because nothing says like uh, I'm against racism like misogyny like the kind right. of stuff that was oh, yeah. written about her on um, but it's this whole yeah. thing that I don't like been... how you hate here's some hate yeah that's right but this is moral hate yeah this, this is from the this hate is coming down from the moral high ground but whether it be um, uh, disenfranchise um, youth because uh, they're their recent immigrants or whether it's disenfranchised youth because of uh, social factors that meant they've grown up in places where your only form of identity like this was martin luther king's critique of um, racism and why poor white people actually buy into racism is that the nature of it was actually economic that if um, the rich white landowners can tell you that at least you're better than African Americans. You go, yeah, that's my sense of pride. I'm better than them. So if you can go, well, at least I'm better than these new immigrants or whatever else, you don't actually challenge the fact. Like we, we used to call Bogans a proletariat. Like, but we, we just make fun of them now. Like, so we have like, you know, on the Cappuccino strip, we, we talk about socialism amongst other kind of people who went to the kind of private schools that we went to and universities that we went to and, and wag a finger. But it's actually neighbourhoods where we're in now where you're dealing with people who um, find it so hard and feel like they've got no power and don't know who they are and lack a larger story and aren't succeeding in this like larger Australian dream. And it's like, well, what am I left with? I'm left with a flag that I wear as a cape and I know I'm a true Australian. How how tragic and the question for me is like even if we can correctly diagnose it like you misogynistic xenophobic racist white supremacist a bigoted homophobic like that might be the correct diagnosis but unless we actually like address those issues in the same way that a doctor would address a disease after diagnosing it we're not going to actually see any change in australia and it goes for for both sides but what it well they're more like the symptoms than the actual disease. Like, mm, it's not the, yeah. ra- the racist or the homophobe yeah. that invented racism or homophobia. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. You, know, you can see it. You can go, oh, here it is. Yeah. But it, it's interesting to me because growing up in the country, and I grew up in a very tiny place, you mm. know, Denison, 350 people last, wow. you know, survey. And, you know, Hayfield was the nearest big town. That's 1,000, 1,200 people. And Sale, where I went to school, was 12,000. Mm. But I saw when SO, it was 20,000, and then SO, the oil company, moved to Melbourne and half the town left. Yeah. So I grew up in my pivotal years, sort of 12 to 17 or whatever, seeing people's lives ruined you know that kind of ruined that area for a while and there was a lot of people who did you know really terribly for a while and there's a lot of people when i go back there because my brother's still there my family you Mm. know they're all still there when i go back there i see a lot of people that you like you know who would be those people when people put point their finger at going oh they're just like racist homophobic you know whatever but they're not Mm. they're just people who have had no other experience than yeah. the one that they've had. And they're people who are down the bottom of the ladder. Yeah. And particularly the press, you know, in this country. And this is the thing that people don't like concentrate on enough on. Hmm. Because the truth is, the reason that you don't have you know, enough 
is not because of the person who has less than you. Mm. It's because of the people right up the top yeah, who have totally. it all. Yep. But you're reading a newspaper every day that is owned by one of those people. <laughs> you know, the, giant, the ATO had News Corp as their biggest tax evader, like, you know, like the billions of dollars out of the Australian economy. That's the reason that money's not there. Mm. But that same newspaper is saying, don't look up here. Yeah. Don't look at the rich people as being the problem. Yep. Look, there's someone more vulnerable than you and they're coming here to take the, what little you have. Yeah. Concentrate on that. Yeah. And if you can find that common enemy, like... Um He's a sociologist. Well, we were, joking, about- we were joking about this yesterday and I, I hope no one takes this the wrong way. But... <laughs> Like because Pauline Hanson is running for the Queensland Senate yeah, now, yeah, and yeah. it's all on an anti-Muslim, yeah. anti-Muslim immigration. Yeah. But I was saying to my friend, I say, like my first show, like twenty years ago, like was a, had Pauline Hanson material in it, mm. but she was against Asians. Asians, then. that's right. It's the same message, yeah, yeah. but a different group of people. Yeah, same, and I same to dynamics. My friend, I was like, different scapegoat. Do you think the Asians started it about the Muslims, just <laughs> to get people off their back? They're like, guys, you know, she I must- know you think we're bad, but how about these Muslims, right? <laughs> She must hate Indonesia. Right. I mean, that's that's both boxes, right? I like think that's pretty much Asian Muslims. Is. Oh my goodness! I like, think she's pretty much just had a bad trip to Bali once, and <laughs> since then has been. <laughs> but it's crazy because it is that thing of like the common enemy. It's that thing yeah. from um, uh, what's the the Alan Moore uh, the the Watchman, right? Mm. And if people have ever seen that movie or read the comic book, yeah. the graphic novel, The Watchman, there's at the end there's the alien reveal because what humanity needs to combined together is a mutual enemy yeah you know, that's we, right like if we if there were aliens suddenly maybe we'd all stop fighting each yeah, other yeah. and we'd be able to fight somebody else yeah well like almost ironically um the hatred of muslims is like massively on the increase while um we're starting to open up about refugees <laughs> it's, it's like we've we've softened in one area because we've seen like this like precious child in the arms of a turkish soldier on, on a beach and we're like oh my goodness they're just like us Hmm. That undermines everything I've said at barbecues for the last 10 years. What do I do now? Uh, well, the issue is Muslims. And so it's the same dynamic. So we'll let some of them in because, oh, yeah, apparently there's a war and that's why we're going to bomb them. Um, who are you going to bomb? Not sure. But it's in Syria. Where's Syria? Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. Which war in Syria are we actually bombing in? Oh, there's more than one war in Syria, really. Yeah. Um, I don't know. The bad guys? Uh, which which yeah, bad guys which in bad particular? Guys. Are, we, are we talking all, Assad? Or are we talking like... Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> like it's like, oh, yeah, but I've got all these opinions and I'm so like our addiction to being right. And I think one of the, the biggest things that actually stands in the way of people wanting to be part of the world being made right is like our addiction to being right uh-huh. is, is like our own like... I am right, so I don't need to. And we've got a leftist version and we've got a right-wing version. And it's like, I'm right, so I don't need to get my hands uh, dirty. I don't need to roll up my sleeves. I don't, I'm always amazed that um, uh, speaking places, I go into country towns where people's um, views are kind of like what you're saying. Like, the jokes aren't politically correct at all. The things that are said, like, I, I, I wince at. And yet country people are so much better at actually receiving refugees and including them in the community while people in the city will often say the right things vote the right way and not actually like connect with real people i absolutely agree with you there is a sense of community in the country and the idea that you are part of a community which is that very thing we were talking about which is Mm. the idea of when people come here the thing that we need to do is include them as part of our society the best way to fight things like terrorism or dis say to someone oh no you're part of this yeah and we're glad you're here yeah yeah and you know and and if you do that 
then people, I mean, this is a great place. Yeah. Like, there is no doubt that this is a beautiful country and can only be made more so by going, hey, if you want to be here really desperately and you want to make a life here, yeah. um, then great. Awesome. Yeah. Welcome on board. Yeah. Because if you look over the history of Australia, every time we've had an influx of immigration, it mm. has made this country better. Mm. Like, you, yeah, you can totally. Just, you can look back and historically prove that. And and at the apart, time... Apart from maybe 1788. Other than that, though, well, since I mean, then... We're not in a like, position to judge that. Yeah, I feel like we can go to some of the people who were beforehand <laughs> and get their opinions on the topic. I, 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 once had, I could have a guess at what they might be. But. <laughs> I once had uh, Uncle Kevin uh, Buzzcott in South Australia, who's a... Um, uh, Aboriginal elder tell me uh, we're at Baxter Detention Centre at a protest at the time. He said, "Look, if you white fellas aren't going to let them in, we should send you lot back as well." And right. he's like, "Spot on." How like, far do you want to go back on this stop the boats thing? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, but I agree with that. Like, but it, but the Greeks and Italians, there was a massive backlash against them at yep. the time. You know, you've got the Asian sort of the Vietnamese, firstly yeah. with the Malcolm Fraser, and then the more the the you know, the Chinese, the Asian, uh, like kind of. There was a time when you know there was a real backlash towards that. Yeah. But now, like in Sydney and Melbourne, places like that, I mean, I, I work in the centre of Sydney and, you know, like probably 50% of the faces you see are Asian faces yeah. in there. And it is just a normal part of, like, you know, like Asian-looking faces. Yeah. Ma- probably many of those people born and raised in Australia. But it's like one of those things where you're like, oh, yeah, of course. And, you know, we, and we, were, eat, we were just here eating Japanese food, yeah. you know, in the suburbs <laughs> in Perth that's right. for lunch, in you know. That's right, what yeah. would What would we have, like, been eating if we hadn't let, you know, we'd be here eating white bread sandwiches, <laughs> like, well, back in the... One of our families um, were uh, the first families that moved into First Home Project were from uh, the Congo. So explain and- to people, like, just to give that context. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, what sure. First Home Project is. At least give yeah. it a quick... We'll get back to it, but give them a pre- quick process so they understand this story. Uh, first Home Project is where we live, um, only we provide a place for um, uh, recently arrived asylum seekers and refugees to actually uh, enter the rental market. So for, for nearly a decade, lived in situations where we opened up um, our home. 2004 was actually the first time. Opened up our home to... Um, uh, refugees but prior to that people you know struggling with drug addictions and um uh, people who were street present and homeless and all that kind of and uh then start opening up our home to people who are refugees and realize that while a welcoming warm community is something that everybody needs um when they're ready to actually get out there they don't have a rental history Mm -hmm. and so we started first home project so um families are actually able to develop a rental hit so the first family that were with us they literally went from being uh, experiencing what's called secondary homelessness. So they're not living on the streets, but they're living on the couches or a pull-out mattress in people's homes in their own community um, uh, uh, like throughout the suburbs. And uh, like the social problems that come along for that as well, that you know the 12-year-old daughter was acting like she's 25 because not living with mum and dad, living with the extended family and some of the stuff that... Um, after one year living with us, not only do the, both parents have full-time work, the kids have actually f- found like hobbies and friends in a, in a school instead of like jumping schools a- across the city, depending on where mum and dad find a bed. Uh, they were able to get their own rental property, which is like an amazing success. A year after that, they uh, got the Home Start, uh, which is a West Australian, so you can start buying your own home. Mm-hmm. So they now own their own home, and all it took was like ordinary crew like you and I who actually said actually we don't want a mortgage for ourselves. we want a mortgage for a place that can actually have uh, homes for other people who don't need a handout like these these people have survived war zones and torture and then made it like on this horrific like 
trip on a, a boat or spent 17 years in a refugee camp where um, uh, the conflict of the war zone is actually taken into a camp and you're forced to live alongside people you used to be fighting with, um, they can make a go of it. They just need a decent right. shot. Like they, they just need an even playing field. And that's what we provide. So practically, it looks like there's uh, 25 of us across uh, five homes now on our street that um, uh, provide a, a little community and we hope we'll like a little picture of what um, Australia can be. That instead of like um, the outrageous cruelty of indefinite detention, this is what we could be doing. Like we could actually be celebrating the kind of things that you were talking about that, you know, we saw in the 1950s with the Greeks and the 60s with the Italians and the 70s with the Vietnamese, um, that this is the kind of stories that we need to see. Um, William Gibson, the science fiction writer, talks about the future is here. It's just not well distributed yet. We hope that this is some of the distribution of a different kind of future and different kind of story. For- I'm a big believer in that idea that you – and, again, I'll just tell a little story about Hayfield. But, like, we had – like, you know, there was the, the local Chinese restaurant because yeah. there was that – you know, the Chinese, like, you know, immigration, and they all just went to a country town yeah. each, basically. Yeah, that's right. And, said, and we'll cleaned open, up for the... <laughs> we'll open the Chinese restaurant. Yeah. But, it, but it became such a natural part of the town. But yeah. it was interesting to me that a friend of mine, a guy that was the same age as me, uh, who was... I, when I grew up, Hayfield was like... I, my experience of Hayfield was homophobic. Mm. Like, I, I, like, the amount of times I, I experienced homophobia, yeah. I don't even know what it would have been like for someone who was actually gay. gay that's right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like, even I needed it. Yeah. It's get, it gets better video. Yeah. That's <laughs> and, you know. But it was. It, I, so there's this guy, this friend of mine, Jamie, and he, he won't mind me using his name, I'm sure. Um, and uh, they have a little cafe now, and mm. they moved back to Hayfield. He and his wow. partner, yeah. like you know, probably I guess it's probably a decade ago now. Yeah, and they opened this little cafe, and that one thing has done more for like curing that area of homophobia than years of anything else could do because it's the best cafe well it's really the only cafe cafe in Hayfield Mm. he and his partner his his beautiful partner came home opened this great business everyone has their birthdays celebrations there everyone's there you know know, Sunday morning and suddenly everybody loves you know that gay now I'm not saying that like it'd be great if people could, you know, recognise there's good in other people without having to, you know, someone to open a cafe <laughs> in their right. area. It's, but it's a lot of things to demand <laughs> from every persecuted people ever. Yeah, that, like <laughs> it'd be tough. It'd be tough to say. I know you guys are marching uh, for equal rights and like equal marriage, but what we really need you yeah. to do is like missionaries, get That's become right. baristas, That's and right. then go to country towns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it, it actually names like how how much courage just everyday life takes for a lot of people who say and like for a lot of crew that live here, there there are some mates here who don't mind their story being told, and understandably there are others who are like, you know what, like I just want to be like other Australians, an ordinary like, person. I, I'm saving up for a car and I'm working my way through TAFE, and that's it. I don't want to be a refugee, and fair enough, like. You, <laughs> Right. You've been through hell. It's time to have a little bit of normality. And it makes it even more exceptional when people go, um, no, I feel like I'm at a stage where I've got the capacity to actually be a voice for something. But we've got like the most phenomenal stories of, again, stories that I've been given permission to share. Like um, once a week, we have a, a meal here where we have anything from 30 to 100 crew who uh, rock up. And it's uh, just a, a time during the week where... It, 
people get to meet people who uh, are finding their place here and the, the most beautiful things happen and seeing local people come who were heaps anti meet people and now go hey I can help with homework lessons it's beautiful like uh, the number of and how confronting people find it when you you like um no we don't want donations um like we don't get paid to do any of this and that's part of it because we're not a service provider we're not social workers we're just people wanting to actually live our life in such a way that provides a way for other people to live a life (laughs) that's that's half decent and people are like oh that's um what what can i do then i'm like make some friends like find out what people actually need don't come around with a bag of clothes that you don't want anymore they probably don't want them either right like like, actually (laughs) what i don't need is old-fashioned that's right (laughs) i've already been through a lot to get here (laughs) and now i have to wear this kangol hat no thank you sir (laughs) Ed Hardy? Yeah. Come on. I've, so, been, I've already been through struggles, but nothing as much as wearing an Ed Hardy shirt down the street. So as we were saying at the, the start, I think the reason why we often uh, make people invisible is to see them actually makes visible our own pain and we can't deal with it. And yet when you actually have communities that provide a way to hold the pain, and it, the only way you can do that is if we hold it together. The only way you do it is if like there's a um, culture of not cover up but actually confession that yep yeah, I'm really bad at doing conflict I, I'm really bad at doing something with my pain where it doesn't lead to addictive cycles I'm really bad and when you start to do that it starts to mean that the people who otherwise get pushed to the margins um, their stories get heard and they become visible and they find a place not on the margins but in the centre so Talib who meets homeless crew and goes I know a place where th- these are Aussie ho- like crew who are homeless in the city and goes, I know a place where you can find friends and where people will love you and brings them home to his home here and uh, that they share in a meal and stuff. Now, for me, I'm like, that's the most phenomenal picture of the Australia that I dream of. Like, uh, um, you, you know, actually for reasons to do with like my faith, I'm pretty anti-nationalism. Um, but it that almost makes me patriotic, kind of going... If that's Australia, maybe I can actually be in on that because um, there's a place for for what I hold as most core and dear to me as well, where compassion means we see uh, people, not issues. And um, sadly, those spaces are, are rare. Okay, so uh, this is about the longest we've gone into the podcast without me actually asking the specific question that I meant to ask in this podcast, but that's okay. (laughs) We were talking about things and we just got distracted, so I will ask it now. Um, And you don't have to have one or like, you know, this question is just a question that I like to ask people. Mm. Um, It can be in relationship to anything, but uh, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Do you have like a guiding philosophy in regard to life or love or work or Mm. everything? Like... um, you know, does it have to do with your faith? Does it have to do with something else? I mean, mm. how, how would you answer that question? So this is my theory of everything, not to steal a name of a book from a um, somebody who's clearly going to sell more books than me. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, philosophy is a Western tradition where we abstract um, stories away to their essence. That's how Western traditions go. We go, what is the essence of it? Um, the philosophy that kind of names me is... Um, has a, a Jewish basis, so they tell stories. I mean, it's like that Simpsons episode where uh, Bart and Lisa are trying to reconcile Krusty with his rabbi dad, mm-hmm. and they're like, uh, uh, does not at all also say, does not also say, like it's a way of actually arguing where you're entering into a story. Um, 
again, if you go and spend time with First Nations people around the world, what they do is they don't talk about like an uh, abstract philosophy. They tell a story, whether it's a, a, a dreaming story or a story that actually names you in uh, the cosmos that's like clearly bigger than you and names you as a part of a people uh, connected to a, a place and you're actually not the centre of it. And so it, it wounds you in that way. Like it's, um, it's kind of the kind of wound that would heal because it's like your ego gets checked by something that's bigger than yourself. So, I mean, cards on the table, like uh, I'm a pastor, clearly like, um, like I love Jesus so much. I make evangelicals blush. I mean, Christians sometimes get embarrassed, (laughs) like how much I like Fred Nile turns to me and says, turn it down, Jared. Like that's the, yeah. Um, uh, and for me, that's, uh, um, uh, I'm I'm part of this odd kind of story where I reckon that God all powerful shows up and gets crucified and is all suffering and that's an odd kind of form of power. Like uh, so for me, it's and the importance to me in terms of what we're saying around um, owning our own stuff and that kind of um, for me, like to put philosophical or theological language around it, it's about grace. That like what is it to actually be approached. Um, not in our strength or our Facebook self-constructed self, but like all the real stuff that we don't want to hide from anyone and experience that um, that shame and guilt or whatever else that we try and cover up in a variety of ways and it be made non-toxic where we can actually not run from it but sit in it and actually go, this is going to be the raw material that... Like it was like you're talking about like um, telling a story of being mugged um, and... like you should thank the guy for taking your phone. Like I'm clearly not saying that um, uh, being mugged is a good thing, but it's often experiences where uh, it's experiences of suffering where life can actually get at us, and we stop be- believing our own propaganda. And for me, um, I think God comes disguised as our life, and in explicitly, God. Um, uh, I mean, you know, this is a very Christian thing to say but well i mean you're a christian so that's, that's right okay. so <laughs> i mean and i knew that coming into this yeah, that's right so it's what? pretty much bait and switch yeah, pretty, you're a what yeah <laughs> hang on i thought we were making porn out here that doesn't seem, <laughs> seems like a completely different angle you've lured me in i heard that this was a meth lab and that's what but this was, was a true meth lab, that yeah. was it was a meth lab you were showing me um, where on the wall they had the the, the, the meth recipes that's the meth right recipes. Um, and in another sense, like people with their pain are still coming here, and hopefully, right. what we're dealing is a, a lot better. I'm not talking in terms of um, uh, theories or like propositions or anything like that, but what it is to enter into stories that you first feel as a sense of like I'm, I'm radically loved and I'm radically accepted, and I don't have to engage in cover ups or whatever. But people actually genuinely like me because they've found some way to actually like those parts of ourselves that we naturally hate. And so people who represent those parts of ourselves that we hate, um, they're no longer toxic for us as well. Uh, so I've got a bunch of things I'd love to talk to you about uh, in regard to you know, your faith. Hmm. Um, the first one is, and look, I'll, I'll put it from this point of view, because uh, a lot of pe- some people will know this. It's not a story that I tell all the time, but it's mm. a story that I've told before, which is that the first job I ever wanted to be was a priest. 
Really? Yeah. Uh, wow. So when I was a kid, I um, my did you get to wear a dress in public? I mean, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we didn't have those. Pro- oh, yeah. Actually, oh, yeah. yeah. I think one of our priests definitely wore a frock. Yeah. There was See, the, there was some incense and frock work. But, definitely. But, yeah, particularly for like arrestable actions. I wish I was from one of those traditions. Right. My, my mate Chris Bedding, he gets to wear a collar and all that, and I wish that was part of my deal. It looks heaps better than like. Yeah. I mean, your frock is certainly like on a day when you're feeling a bit bloated. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Like if I was like at dinner and they're like, "Do you want some more cheesecake?" and I'd be like, "You know what? Damn straight, damn I'm in straight, the yeah." yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah, take this. This is also my yeah, delicious it, body. It's very slimming. It's so, also my delicious body. <laughs> I mean, black is that, slimming. That was right? a great inside joke. I appreciate oh, yeah. that. Thanks, man. All the god botherers are just gone. Well played, Will. So, well played. Yeah, welcome to them. I'm not sure how many listened before this episode. <laughs> no, I, um, yeah, so I went to church because my grandmother, my nana, who's still alive, Irene, mm. um, she's, she's very religious and religious mm. in the way I think that you are religious in that she believes in the idea of Jesus's, you know, re- idea of religion. Mm. You know, I've never felt her to be a prejudiced person. She's mm. she's an Anglican, very much in that mm. old school, but it's very much about, you know, uh, baking cakes to raise money for, you know, less advantaged people. And, Giddy you know, up, like the, man. Yeah, yeah kind awesome. of the real sense of, like, you know, small yeah. country town, you know, Christianity, wow, you know. Yeah. And... It's very important to her, and she mm. honestly believes it to be true. Mm. Uh, from r- reading my mum's Facebook page, I think my mum probably has become a little bit more what that way as she's got older mm. again too. Um, my dad was never religious, mm. and not in a. Uh, my dad's a farmer, grew up on the farm, and has just never had a place in his life. Just didn't believe. Mm. Not in a. Never heard him talk about it. Mm. Just it was. Uh, it was just known that dad didn't come to church. It mm. wasn't for him, and so that was how I was raised. But yeah, I yeah. went. And I loved really? it. Yeah, wow. I mean, I loved it because I loved the singing and I loved the, like, the fact that, I mean, I remember the first time I got to, like, a reader, you know, do a reading wow. on Sunday. And, like, I mean, later on in my life, I realized it was probably the standing up in front of people and <laughs> having them listen to me a bit of it than I liked. Like, it was essentially my first gig. That's right. <laughs> it was less about the religion. I just wanted somewhere where I could wear black, talk for ages, and drink alcohol. And it was either church or stand up. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I went to like, but I became part of like youth groups, and so wow. I, so I have a like I grew up around that, and I went to a religion, a school that had religion as one of its yeah subjects yeah, as yeah. part of the curriculum. But yeah. it was the Anglican ver- mm. version of yeah you know, Church of England version of religion. Mm. You know, I, I still to this day think at school. Um, you know, I talk about this in my show a little bit, which is this idea of like you know, even though I don't believe in God myself, as you know. Um, like this idea that we throw away all the good stuff about religions, the thing that they all have at their core, which is the thing that has meant that they have survived so long, despite what I would argue is many of the terrible things that yeah. they have associated with them. And I know you talked about this with uh, Tom Bellard when mm. you had him on the podcast, the golden rule, for example, do unto others as mm. you would have them do unto you. That It's in the Hebrews, it's in the Quran. Yeah. Like I'm, everyone has a version of that. Yeah, yeah. Now, my version of it for 2015, which I talk about in the show, is it should be updated just slightly. This is my new golden rule. If I could be arrogant enough to... To update it here it is <laughs> do unto others as you would have them do unto you but first just get the permission of others before yeah. you do unto them what you would have them do unto you because yeah, sometimes yeah. people don't want to do unto you what yeah. you want to do unto them yeah yeah but and my point being, exegetically hermeneutically that's in jesus's <laughs> stuff as well we can do a bible study after will but yeah I'd like in terms of your point totally right so i like all that stuff and i 
enjoy, you know, the philosophies and mm. all that stuff. But I got to a point uh, at school in particular where mm. the way that religion was being taught as if it was the only solution to the problems. Mm. And it started to be the flaws that took me away from it. Mm. You know, the things that I could see, it's like, well, I don't like that and I don't like how you prejudice this and I don't think mm. that makes any sense. And yeah. I probably don't believe that there is like, you know, this way that you describe God. Mm. I, I don't believe that, that that doesn't make sense to me in the way that I see the world. But the the thing that annoyed me about that was that it drove me away from re- the idea of learning from religions for such a long time. Mm. And you have this great like oral and written history of the world and what people believed. And yes, it's been interpreted in a mm. million ways, some really positive and some really negative since. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But I, I honestly believe at school we sh- there should be a course that is taught at every school. I don't think you should be able to actually teach at one religion at schools. I don't think yeah. that is very good for society. Mm. But my, I think there should be a class called What People Believe. Yeah, totally. And that y- you should get a sense of by yeah. the end of it. Like, you know, here's yeah. here's some things. Here's what a, like a Muslim believes. Yeah. Or here's what this Christian believes. And here's yeah. what this other Christian yeah. has a completely different take yeah. on the topic. And, you know, give it people a sense of there are these things out here and people are trying to answer these questions mm. in some way. And here is my answer or my philosophy on what, you know, the, yeah, the yeah, way yeah. to answer those questions. Yeah. And even just in terms of like understanding Western history, like um, to understand how... Uh, like John Dixon has a book on this, like um, where like humility was never a value of the ancient world. It, it took a group of people claiming that uh, God got crucified, which maybe rightly so. Most people go, Jared, that's ridiculous. And I go, yeah, I know if it's just central to what I'm on about. Right. Um, to actually see that like things... Can't have the Batman story without Bruce Wayne's parents being killed. That's right. <laughs> Otherwise, he's just a billionaire with no real problems. That's right. Never becomes the Batman. But I often think that um, uh, people think that uh, the Jesus story is a hero story, is a Superman, uh, Batman kind of story. If, if Jesus is like anything, he's like the Joker. Albeit a nonviolent Joker who is like love, but um, in terms of you know Slavoj, have you heard Slavoj Žižek's uh, read of the Dark Knight, which is like I know one no. of it's one of my favorite films ever. I know yeah. like yeah, you uh, listeners, you must Google Slavoj Žižek's uh, take on the Dark Knight. Um, is by the way, that'll be incredibly difficult to Google if people don't know how to spell that. So like- I just <laughs> I just suggest S L A and then just mash your keyboard, and it and it probably should still come up. It'll be fine. I reckon it'll be top five answers. Choose Translate Slovenian and go for it. Yeah. Um, uh, his his whole take. This doesn't answer your question at all. This is Jared's ADD. Like, um, Mate, we've got the, time. Yeah, um, if you've got time, I've got time. I, I've got time. Uh, his whole take is that the what Bruce Wayne does um, uh, each you know Saturday night going out to um, beat up the bad guys makes him feel justified about the rest of his life, which is running Wayne Industries, where it's actually that's why you end up with bad guys and this whole like breakout of um, so the the need to be like the the superhuman uh, I'm right and righteous and not deal with my past like and sit down with a therapist and go mum and dad were killed in front of me, which is pretty heavy for any kid, right? Like right. and um, uh, instead, I'm going to, like, because apparently I'm making so much money that I can have, like, secret military projects that no one, like, scratches their head about. Like, that's, that's a serious amount of coin that he's right. making way in the industries. While the Batman challenges the whole system in ways that 
doesn't prop it up. And this is actually Kierkegaard's um, uh, whole point around the, the problem with respectable faith is that it's actually the other side of larger society and is just an outworking where we, we soothe ourselves and make ourselves feel better and that I'm a good person instead of confronting the dark reality that we all have this amazing capacity for good, but also for just being assholes. Like, and I mean, that's the, that's the doctrine, like, of, you know, um, sin is like, we're all assholes. Like, most pastors, priests won't express it like that. But that's what it's saying is that we have this incredible ability to lie to ourselves about what we do and how we do it and why we do it, instead of actually face the fact that um, uh, I'm no better than those who are hitting up outside my office building in the city before I get in the train and run away from where they are. And, uh, that that's a hard thing for for any of us to face. I totally agree that um, we should have chaplains that just aren't Christians but are, are from all faith. We we should actually be educating on the the history of different religions to actually understand the world. It's pretty hard to do that without and just basic things like um, you know when people say ridiculous things. Uh, that's a bit harsh because I've heard you say it on the podcast. But like we all know that Jesus isn't real. Well. It takes faith to say Jesus is risen from the grave. I'll give you that. Uh, it takes faith to say um, uh, Jesus is God in sandals. I'll give you that. But there's no ancient historian or classics like historian will, who will ever say that Jesus isn't a historical dude. I mean, yeah, sure. Like he's. Yeah, it's, I mean, just, I, I'm not arguing that Jesus may or may, yeah, you know, might have existed. I'm, I don't have yeah, a problem with that. Yeah, like, but so many people, whether he was the son of God or whether he was, you know, all yeah, that yeah. sort of stuff. Then yeah. sure, that's where I, I get a little bit more sus on the story. But and to know. actually have conversations along those lines that. Um, uh, we can actually locate this historical figure and what he was on about for the good of Christians as well. Like, I think it's the best way to pull um, uh, Christians up on whatever is actually go, uh, isn't your Jesus about? Like, it's that um, uh, Bill Maher quote that um, uh, nonviolence is Jesus' big thing. It's kind of his deal. To miss that is is to miss everything. It's like joining Greenpeace but hating whales. It's like, it's what's core to who Jesus was and how he... Well, I, I joked about it on Gruen the other night, but uh, we were talking about with the Pope's visit yeah, to the yeah, US and there was, was all the right-wing commentators who yeah. were saying, you know, they're about trickle-down economics. economics. And I, and I, and I yeah. joked, I said, you know, when Jesus fed the masses through the miracle of trickle-down <laughs> economics... <laughs> And I mean, you know, I, I, you know, if you know anything about Jesus, and this is the thing, the story yeah. of Jesus, like I love, yeah, like, yeah. because that's, I mean, again, I don't, <laughs> I don't consider myself, but I, my show is parables. Yeah. I tell five or six stories that all have a point that isn't the actual thing that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's what I'm doing. That, that was a guy who would tell a story, that, mm. and all these stories like reflect philosophies by which you know yeah. I also live my life yeah, like yeah. his skepticism of like you know inequality and capitalism totally and his non-judgment of yeah. others and his idea that you know you could hang out with you know politicians as much as you hang out with a prostitute like the idea yeah. that treat people equally as they yeah, come yeah. to you all that stuff is stuff that i yeah like that i try to live my life by yeah you and know. The, the difference being to relocate jesus um, in his Jewish context, the, the the Hebraic hope is not that one day I'll sit on clouds with fat babies 
playing harps and I'll have wings and I'll hang out with other God botherers, which like sounds like hell to me. Like that doesn't sound like a good thing. That's how, <laughs> so I can't think of a few things worse is, is that actually that the world will actually be made right. That what we, what we long for, the kind of beauty that we long for in our own lives, the kind of sense of, of justice and for peace that we long for, that um, one day that will be a reality. And the, the Christian's crazy claim is that, uh, yeah, that crucified guy, he actually brought that. I know everybody thought that this new world was going to come with a sword and uh, it would just be like any other political takeover. But instead of riding in on a war horse, uh, he rides in on a donkey, making fun of Rome and its power and the way it operates. Instead of conquering with a sword, uh, he conquers with a towel, washing the feet of even the one who's going to betray him. Like, th- this is central. This isn't like, um, uh, like added extra. This is like Christianity 101. Is like <laughs> It's this whole thing about mm, God seen most clearly is god seen suffering and dying which is a pretty horrific right and um and but also jesus was you know a rebel in the time like yeah, saying yeah. things that i mean eventually got him literally exactly killed. yeah yeah <laughs> so. and, and unless you've got an account for jesus not as like um some you know uh mystical figure walking two feet off the ground just kind of saying nice things that are common sense like hey let's be decent unless you've got a sense of like his message being such a political threat that um the religious authorities and their blame games and uh the political powers with their power over games will actually actively collaborate to hang him up unless you've got a story that brings together why somebody would hang him up uh the story doesn't make any sense and the biggest threat to to much of Christianity today, I think, is actually Christ, um, to actually take him seriously. The, the thing that televangelists fear more than anything is that people will take Jesus seriously in such ways that um, their exploitation of the poor will no longer work because they can see that Jesus is actually on about the kind of world where the poor are always with us because they're close to us and we're giving them what we've got. So, answer like uh, I'd like to know what you think about this. Is so all that said, all those mm. things that you know, I'm like, you know, I, I totally agree with you on that. Mm. Then, how do you reconcile this idea of how many terrible things are done in the name of the person that you love? Do you yeah. know what I mean like you know like you? I mean, and I'm not necessarily yeah, in yeah. the name of Jesus, but in the name of religion or in yeah. the name of. But even in the name of Jesus, I mean, yeah. you don't have to go far further than like um, Ku Klux Klan claim to be a Christian group, right? Awkward, like yeah. you know, that's that's. <laughs> That's pretty. Right. Uh, um, uh, um, what I, I mean, find phenomenal. I mean, you don't have responsibility with, for everybody. No. Like, I mean, Bill Cosby was a comedian, and I don't endorse <laughs> anything that went on there. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, we all have bad apples in yeah. our. But yeah. you know, it must be hard for someone like you who, like, you know, loves Jesus and yeah. like honestly believes that, that you know that is you know this has been your life and your dedication yeah. to live in that way. What do you think when you see these terrible things done in the name of a thing that you love? Yeah. For me, the thing that like literally brings me to tears, I, I think about um, uh, like three friends in the last uh, year, year and a half, who um, have um, uh, come across, have become Christians, who are gay and lesbian, and I, I'm like, this truly is a miracle. Because why would you sign up to this? Right. Like um, everybody. You've read else- the rules of the club, right? <laughs> <laughs> everybody or. Almost on both sides assumes that, um, like, you get a pretty hard time because of the amount of hatred and fear and um, 
any of us who have got close friends that like we've waited in emergency rooms with them in two o'clock in the morning because they found it so hard to accept themselves because larger society says that there is wrong with them. Why would you then sign up to something that most people say is part of the problem? Um, that's what I find incredibly moving that they've been captivated by a, a vision of, of love uh, or that they see in Jesus, that they can go, I can deal with the horrific stuff that's said about that by people who claim that um, uh, because of what I see there. And that's, that's a hard thing for any of us to do is to actually own those parts of our story, um, w- whether it be uh, in our family histories, um, what people did to the first people of the land, um, uh, what our family histories um, we did to uh, who we rightly named as oppressors and yet we did things that um were unspeakable i mean it's, it's a confronting thing to um, be in a, a pub where uh, my great-grandfather was blown up in and know that extended family have been involved in the same activities and predominantly those behaviors actually came from our side but i'm white so i get to forget my story because that's the nature of white supremacy is Uh i get to go hey uh, i'm just quote unquote australian while my wife and my son get asked all the time so where are you from like and they go midland and they go no where are you where are you really from originally and like they have to give an answer because apparently white isn't default right where are you from originally yeah if you're white and you're here you've only been here like at most 230 years when i'm when i'm running workshops on uh uh uh, tracy blackman who's the um one of the leaders of the um black lives matter movement in ferguson we did a Mm -hmm. workshop together uh in chicago on immigration and white supremacy because i think unless you can actually start from a place where you name those dynamics um we will hide behind what we're doing is like what we're doing here at first home project isn't charity and it isn't about us being good people it's about a different vision of what it is to be human that is much more all love makes away like you know over 200 um, priests, pastors, and a rabbi in the mix—just one. It's sounds like awesome. a great joke. Yeah, it's, it's right. <laughs> Walk into a Do politician's office and don't leave. There's a punchline until children are free, and and you start talking about that. And it's so easy, particularly for people of faith, moves into this self-righteous kind of. Um, uh, Jesus is harsh as criticism. You know, the only time Jesus talks about hell, and he talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible, he never talks to, about hell to anybody that's an outsider. It's only those who see themselves as insiders and in like religious political power controlling the story. And they ha- Jesus has the harshest things to say, but never to anyone who is struggling on the margins. And it isn't the main deal. It isn't like, hey, here's get out of free hell cards. It's like, here's like this um, dark, you know, it's almost like um, prophetic slam poetry saying, one day what you're doing now causing hell for others is going to be exposed for the hell it is and you'll accept that fate and that'll be your fate like we we live into what we will be forever and that's a that's that's the way it's actually talked about and um what yeah people miss that kind of stuff uh what how do you uh, process the idea of your life through the eyes idea of religion i'm not asking that in the right way what i really want to know <laughs> i'm going to just ask it really bluntly he's like 
how much of your life do you believe is free deter- like you know is determined by you how much of the world do you think is like you mm. know like because the the argument that's made like against religion and you know one that resonates at least on a certain level to me is like if there is a god why does he let all these terrible things happen to vulnerable people yeah. how how do you through how you see your religion process those sort of questions yeah totally um my, i mean my picture of god is um a, a guy hanging on what is capital punishment so um uh, and that's my picture of what it is for god to be all powerful all powerfulness looks like um suffering truth and unarmed love to quote martin luther king that's um that's pretty confronting that i think most of the ways that we think power haven't run through that disturbing image that like disfigured on that crucifix um uh, dying is strangely the clearest vision of who god is and that's that's a troubling so like we were talking about zizek before in terms of his batman um his book the monstrosity of christ written with um uh, milbank is he's talking about the monstrosity of a god who like experiences well to quote chesterton that uh, um, only the christian god is an atheist here you have um the second person of the holy trinity crying out to the first person of the Holy Trinity, why have you forsaken me? That for me, um, God isn't an abstract idea, but somebody who I see to be love in this like, first century figure who um, uh, acts up in such ways that the powers that be want to hang him up. So I don't have a neat answer. Life is just as dark and confusing and inexplainable, and not having an answer is actually at the centre of my tradition. Like, there's nothing about Christianity that actually comforts me. I got some mates who are like, "Oh, you're a Christian because it brings comfort and it gives like." Motive. No, it doesn't. It makes me face all the stuff that I don't want to look at in myself and in the world. Like it's, um, uh, it's the worst opiate of the masses ever because it doesn't send you to sleep. It it actually wakes you up and goes, "Here's our pain. Here's the world's pain, and are you going to run from it?" That's interesting to me. Like, that's an interesting perspective because I, you, you know, you you would imagine that sometimes it, you know it's a comfort to people, and you hear people mm. saying like, you know, when someone dies or whatever, and they you know say you know they've gone to heaven, and that they're those moments where you're like, well, let. I mean, I know I don't believe in that, but if mm. they if that comforts them and that yeah. gives them that security, but for you it seems a different thing. It energizes yeah, you or it challenges you. Those experiences you or, at a funeral, which like you never challenge because like people at a, right. a, a funeral um it's a surefire sign that you failed as a pastor like it's it's right. like mm, they probably don't get the gospel that the gospel isn't about like fire insurance for the afterlife um uh, nor is it about like life after death it's about what's the vision of life before death Je- jesus prayer is not uh, your kingdom i will go but your kingdom come your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven like it's a vision of this world being transformed with that loving presence that brings justice and um, takes the ugliness of our lives and can make that ugliness sing with something that is beautiful so i want to talk to you about uh protest and where that's like sure uh, because before you do you ever read choose your own adventure books yeah of course yeah they were my favorite as a kid and that's how i understand something of reality that like the the author writes a book but our agency is real. What we choose in life is real. Um, are there pages that are already written? Yeah, you bet. And sometimes it's like we have experiences and like this is the way, like this was meant to be. This is what I mean. Like, um, but I think the pages that we turn to 
um, are really our choice. And um, some pages we go like in a direction that like um, uh, affirms uh, addiction and death deal- dealing and goes in bad direction. And we can later turn to a page that is maybe like a more fuller picture of what it is to be human. But the decisions we make in life are real. I just think on each page, lovers actually inviting us into this moment to actually slow down and accept like that, um, you know, preacher talk, there's nothing that we are that can make love love us more. There's nothing that we can do that make love love us less. And we sit in that dark reality that I am loved and actually even in my brokenness, and particularly in my brokenness, I'm okay, uh, you live differently out of that. Like it's a, it's a different way of putting things together. Uh, that's interesting to me. So I wanted to talk about the protest thing because I, like, you know, am a person with protest is confronting to me. I find it like a confronting, like, you know, that idea mm. that you are going to put yourself in a situation. Just talk me through, talk me through your, your history of protest, how you came to protest, how you found protest, mm. how, what you think is effective as a means of protest. I, mm. I'm very fascinated in the idea of protest. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, the, the book and the story that um, have formed me, uh, like Jesus gets strung up because like he's involved in a bunch of different protests. Um, uh, temple action he was involved in didn't go down all that well. And that was probably the thing that tipped it over the edge. But even uh, most of the New Testament, like a whole bunch of it is written from jail. Um, so the, there's something in the, the nature of the early Christian movement before it got into bed with the empire, that it was a movement. Uh, all of Christian scripture, like uh, Jewish scripture is, is written from below. Uh, people who aren't on the top of society, they're not in Pharaoh's courts, they're not on the side of Caesar, uh, they're the slaves in the story. And these are the um, stories, sometimes dark stories, of a people dealing with oppression and uh, who maybe ridiculously believe that uh, the creator that animates everything is actually on the side of the oppressed. And that's a, that's a crazy story. So when... Um, for me, when I became a Christian, none of my mates in high school uh, were Christian at all, and they all thought that like I'd drunk the Kool Aid. And I mean, that must I, be weird because I imagine as a teenager, that's the and you know, how old are you? If you don't mind me asking, no, not at all, thirty-four. Yeah, so okay, well, yeah, so I'm a bit older than you. I'm forty-one, and even at, at my age, I think if you were like the Christian guy at high school, like the and we, yeah. I know I went to a Christian school, but if yeah. you were the Christian Christian guy, yeah, like it would have been. So I even imagine like a few years later it would have been even harder was that a hard time yeah but i mean compared to other people's experience like i think i had a really good time like it was odd for me because it um uh in in ways that um uh probably pretty simple at that age like a lot of things are it i had a sense that like i was valued and that despite being dyslexic and having add and not doing well at school but being smart that i had worth and that um, I was I was loved, and maybe my theology was not that much more complicated than like I believe God's love, and you see that love in Jesus, and by grace we can live that love. Like we actually get to be a part of be a part of that. And so yeah, I mean it it definitely. Um, uh, you, you probably heard I was sharing with um, Tom on his podcast that 
I got a hard time for being gay because like opting out of certain things that go on uh, in certain ways of talking about women and that kind of stuff uh, means that like you become questionable. Right. Um, uh, so, <laughs> Ironically, now you're Christian and gay, so you've got to also hate yourself in some complicated way. <laughs> um so like yeah it's uh but like i i had such a sense and and like the greatest like uh, revenge for me was seeing my mates who like made fun of me and everything like um uh, finally get in on the act as well and like sucked in you're a god bother now as well and now you have to love your enemies too right like it's like (laughs) check mate um uh Yeah, that, that's that, my favorite. Like, now you have to love your enemies too. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, Sucked like, in. Um, one of my mates um, would like just punch me in the guts as hard as he can and go, You have to forgive me, you're a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> but at least yeah. showing a capacity for understanding of like, one right. of the fundamental principles that's of Christianity. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, in some ways. And I guess that has a formative like influence on a kid and so uh, maybe in high school like those experiences were experiences of protest like mm-hmm. on subtle levels like the kids that um were gay or geeks or the other reasons that are completely unfair that um people uh choose them to pick on other than other people um they were, they were now my peeps because like right. jesus hung out with tax collectors and sex workers and um so like i'm just like them and so well, um, in a really simple way for a kid, I think I was, um, uh, you know, undoing some of the fabric. And that's the Joker. Christ is more like the Joker than the Batman. A Batman swings in and, like, beats up and makes right and reestablishes the way things are. Um, uh, imagine a nonviolent Joker that actually undermines that whole thing with a picture that is so threatening that you end up having to kill it. But unfortunately, it comes back and offers forgiveness. Like, right. it's... Um, uh, <laughs> It's like the reversal of zombie movies. Zombie movies is like um, uh, the living dead. Mm. Um, This is the dead living in that (laughs) what Jesus resurrected reveals is that we're the living dead and we don't know what real life is. And then someone who's fully alive rocks up and we're like, oh, my goodness, this is completely threatening. We're actually eating each other and we're we're dead all the time. And this kind of love and this kind of forgiveness, like, um, can we kill him again? Like, what what do we do with that? Um, And so maybe the experiences started there. I think definitely um, being in what first year of high school and presenting myself to the school librarian and saying uh just become a christian um can i have some books on like famous christians and that and took me and showed me a bunch of stuff and the ones that i recognized from home were martin luther king uh mother Teresa, um uh and bonhoeffer i think were the and uh at the time i struggled with reading and stuff so i went home and literally drew every page in this um uh uh documentation photo documentation of the civil rights movement the freedom movement and uh, that had a huge impact on like kids in high school would say what kind of christian are you and i'd say the kind that's trying to follow jesus and they'd be like what and i'm like the kind like martin luther king or mother Teresa, um because none of my mates knew any of the like and even if i told them they would still like go what the hell are you talking about um and i think that kind of early identification i remember being in year 
uh, eight history class with Mr. Polk and him talking about, I've just become a Christian and he's talking about like the Reformation history and he's talking about the corruption in the 16th century Catholic Church and he's talking about uh, Luther and him having a pimp in Prince Frederick II to create his own state and Calvin and what they all share in common is that they're all killing each other over what the truth is and I'm like, if this is Christianity can I get unbaptized? Like, how, how do you reverse the process? And then he started talking about this crew known as the Anabaptists um, who what all of them shared in common is that they all killed Anabaptists because they said like the Sermon on the Mount which Gandhi said was central to his revolution in India as a Hindu Gandhi was killed by Hindu extremists who claimed he was trying to Christianize Christi- uh, Hinduism Gandhi said that any Hindu who has not studied uh, the life of Christ their life isn't complete he could he had memorized all three um, chapters of the Sermon on the Mount and asked his whole movement to meditate at day and night like I, I at least want to take Jesus as seriously as this Hindu Gandhi right. takes him seriously. Um, and that that kind of stuff of finding out that, oh, there's a 600-year history of people who thought that uh, loving your enemies probably means don't bomb them. Yeah, I want to sign up with that crew. That, that provides an opportunity for a Christianity that I think I can um, be down with. What was the first protest you went to? Do you remember? You were involved in? Yeah, um, October 2002. Um, uh, so Scotty Ludlam, uh, we met there actually. We travelled out on a bus together. He was a graphic designer at the time, um, uh, which I guess isn't everybody's journey to senator via, via graphic designer. Um, and it was Pine Gap US military uh, base. Just the invasion of Afghanistan had started and the invasion of Iraq hadn't yet. That was going to happen, what, four or five months later. And, well, uh, that's because Saddam Hussein hadn't caused 9-11 yet. <laughs> so, as we all know, happened exactly as... <laughs> well, I mean, that was a pretty um, phenomenal experience. I was like living in the States during September 11th, and I got kicked out of my host family's home, this very polite southern family with a gun collection who thought that the Australian with his socialist views, because like I believed in universal health care and education should be for everyone. Some sort of safety net. Yeah, yeah. like um, uh, it was time for me to go after uh, 9-11, end up living with Carl Meyer, who... Um, uh, he was arrested over 50 times during his life um, and uh, like this phenomenal social activist. He had a picture in his living room of him uh, marching shoulder to shoulder with Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Nobel Peace Prize winning monk on one shoulder and Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King on the other and living in East Nashville where I was one of two white people within eight blocks. That has an effect on how you read the Bible. It's amazing when you read a book from below in situations from below and suddenly it moves from abstract philosophy into something that's very concrete about how do we put love in action in ways that create justice. Okay, so tell me uh, what you think the role of protest is. Do you think that protest is effective? What is the most effective way to protest? I'm Mm. fascinated around all this, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, I've got a mate, who um, Shane, who talks about protestifying, that it should be about telling uh, a story um, and a story that... So hopefully, like where you are now, is a, a living protest to, you know, the reality of detention. And you're like, well, but it's so nice. And, like, um, you met some of the crew that live here and it's so beautiful. B- beauty, hopefully, is our protest. Like, hopefully, we not only say 
name what is wrong and expose it, but actually show a picture that is more beautiful that we can lean into. Um, and the kind of stories, stories. So just even on that, and we'll get like, we'll. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. you just reminded me of something I wanted to talk about, which is that idea of with the refugee policy that we have here yeah. in Australia. The thing that I've never heard from either side mm. is anyone ever say. Like, even if you think, which I don't, like, and people know mm. this, I don't even have to clear it up. But for the record, even if you believe that stopping the boats was the most humane thing to do, like, mm. if you subscribe to that argument that is made that some people use, mm. that I don't agree with personally, but for a myriad of reasons that I won't get bogged down in now. But if you subscribe to that, if someone said, we think this is the best way to deal with this problem, but we acknowledge that there are all these terrible, terrible side effects to this and we are looking for a better way every day. Mm. And when we find that better way, that's what we'll do. Then I think people would be like, okay, but it's almost like we've just did that thing about, well, this is our solution. Everything's fine. There is no better way. And we're not looking anymore because this is the only way to solve this problem and we are not looking for any better solutions than this. Yeah. And like people forget that it's Pauline Hanson who came up with that three-word slogan, Stop the Boats. Like that, how disturbing is that? And now, oh like both major parties are using it. And what what people forget is that um, why story and being located in community for me is that it's not about easy answers. Like as long as as long as there will be wars, there will be refugees because people want to live. I understand that. I would like to live most of the time as well. And so I'm naturally going to take my family and my loved ones and run away from a war zone. And unless we can actually stop that reality, this is going to continue. And the question becomes, well, how do we actually ask questions of what we've done differently? And it's not r- radical communist-like ideals that we have to... John Howard in 2005 let all children and their families out of detention that would be a decent thing to be able to... The Fraser Liberal government actually positioned Australia to be leaders in a regional solution. People get on boats for the same reason people jump from burning buildings. If you stay, you're going to die. And so it's not people looking for a better life. It's looking for people at a chance of life. The reality of the world's responses is that that burning building has a hundred windows out the front of it and only one of them has a ladder to it and it's the UNHCR. So it leaves 99% of refugees with the option of do I stay and burn to death or do I jump? And people get on boats because they're, let's provide more ladders. Like We, we just slashed in the last budget our aid development and relief budget by $7.6 billion dollars. That's what puts out flames. That's what, like, what are we actually investing in, like, um, peacemaking initiatives um, uh, and aid and development and relief to actually address the the flames? Um, But no, we're we're pulling out of that. And we just increased 8.6, no, uh, 8.3 billion we put into imprisoning people whose only crime is fleeing war offshore like it's so there's nothing rational about it no we need that money to drop peace on syria <laughs> I, <laughs> so, you know that's what we're doing or, or on hospitals right. in- it costs us more to torture them yeah. and put them in a situation yeah. as a country and yeah. this is the thing somebody like tweeted me the other day and was said to me he goes oh, i challenge you to do one year at the melbourne comedy festival where you don't talk about refugees so you get a pat on the back Firstly, no one's ever patted me on the back for talking about refugees. I've never sold a ticket, often in my shows, yeah. when it comes up, even the audience who are there, yeah. some of them feel a bit uncomfortable yeah, yeah, I'm totally. talking about. It's not, 
if I wanted more people to come to my show, yeah. if I wanted to sell more tickets or yeah. more pats on the back, yeah. then I just wouldn't talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I talk about it because I think that we're spending, like in the same way as somebody goes, oh, I don't like paying for the ABC because they showed some show I didn't like. Well, you know what? I pay my taxes and a lot of those taxes is going to t- places where they torture children and mm. women are getting raped and these mm. sort of things. And it's being done with at least partly my money. Yeah. And so, you know what? I'm going to say that I don't like that. <laughs> I'm, I feel like I'm, I feel like that's like if someone yeah. came up to me in the street and said, Hey, can I have 50 bucks? I'm going to rape someone. I'd be like, no, yeah. in fact, I'm going to report you to the authorities. Yeah. But apparently I give that money to the government yeah. and they give it to Transfield and yeah. they just let it happen. 67 reports of rape or sexually abuse, 33 reports of the abuse of children. That's what's happening in Nauru. And people go, Hey, it's awesome that like, um, somebody said to me, but Jared, isn't it good that we've now got free range refugees? And I was like, no, they're not freaking chickens. Right. We're not like, like oh, but we had caged people before. Mm. Surely free range. No, that's, no. that's, these are, these are people. Their like problem wasn't me. that they couldn't stretch their legs. That's right. I mean, actually, that probably was one of the problems, but it was down the list well, of the The irony problems. in terms of like it actually being opened up is that the, the people who were raped, it was already open during the day. They've right. now just said it's open 24 hours. Yeah. How does that make it any safer for people? Like it's, it's crazy. The, one of the major problems I have with the well, there's a bunch of them, obviously, and you know, this is this is just going to essentially be two people agreeing with each other. But but one of the major problems I have is a lack of transparency. Oh, if you honestly don't believe that anything is being done that is wrong, yeah. like, and that's fine. If you want to go out there and say this is the best solution and this yeah. is the only solution that we have, then all you know what you need to do: let the journalists in, yeah. let the press see it. Yeah, because yeah. if you've got nothing to hide, then don't hide it. Yep. Because while you hide it, yeah. then we've got to suspect that you know, when we hear these stories of these terrible things. I mean, yeah. UNHCR reports. Like, these that's aren't right. just you know, international. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And there's this phenomenal story that Ursula Le Guin, um, feminist science fiction writer, um, uh, just a short story where she talks about this ideal society and she starts describing it and she says, and if it sounds too utopian or puritanical, add an orgy or two and some alcohol. And th- she like actually inserts this in the story to paint this picture and then says the dark secret of this like perfect society is there a cellar with an it, doesn't even give it an agenda, which is a child that's locked in the cellar and everybody knows knows about it everybody know it is there but the um, brilliance of the philosophers um, the workmanship uh, of the laborers um, uh, the the splendor of the city all depends on this unspeakable like we've dehumanized someone um, it's a story about Australia like it's a story of like what we lock offshore um, actually makes us feel like an us because we have a them. And so we, we hide the bodies under flags and go, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. And like the sound of us saying that means we can't hear their cries. These are people just like us. And think of like towns where you've grown up and what it would do to a town to actually have like people processed in a regional community with a new like businesses open up and, and what that does the amount of money that that would pump into a local area where people have lost their work um julian burnside has suggested that it will cost us 4.5 uh uh billion to to do it and that's a huge saving it's like halving what we're currently spending and all the money goes into regional centers where places where people are struggling actually like um are able to uh like welcome and see their towns 
Like that makes sense. What doesn't make sense? It makes complete sense, and it also makes sense that if we could take the same amount of money and put the in, put it into industries of the future, yes, totally. and like I mean, because you know, we had the Snowy Mountain scheme, for example, yeah. that was essentially you know built on like you know, immigrant. Yeah. labor but it was an opportunity for people to come here yeah. and work on this thing we should be doing the biggest like solar energy like right. i mean look no, at australia for solar energy mate you need a country that has wide open spaces and is hot all the oh hang on yeah no you're right this is the exact right place to be doing solar energy if only there was somewhere that had no people that was windy as well yeah. and we oh yeah okay this yeah. is the exact yeah. right but i mean that's the point right you could have yeah. whole communities around these infrastructure projects that would that aren't like, you know, this idea of like sending someone to, you know, some place that they don't want to go to. You could build wonderful communities and genuine wealth and like yeah, genuine yeah. prosperity on these projects. Yeah. It's like an opportunity to, and if you welcome people in and you give them an opportunity and you let them be part of communities. Yeah. I mean, it just, it seems crazy to me, but it also seems really self defeating, even as an idea, if there's this like, you know, prejudice of like, you know, our society will change. Well, a society's mm. going to change regardless. Yeah. We can either you move know, it in a direction that, yeah, right, totally. Where we're all yeah. on the same page, or we can let it, you know, divide and, yeah. yeah, become, you know, horrible. But it's not like. And this is, this is where like um, protest becomes the responsibility of everyone. Mm. And like we were talking earlier about, uh, I think the. Um, uh, Hebrew prophets, the biblical prophets today would be stand-up comedians. And, and what people tend to miss is that um, the, the right tend to think of prophets as fortune tellers, like predicting the future. The left tend to think of them as social activists. And the truth is that they were, they were actually poets who captured people's imagination with a vision of a different future in such ways that um, it, it made people limp away. It made people like unable to move in the way that they... It was... Um, more like the Joker, like creating such a disturbance where you have to reassess everything um, uh, that we're not the superhero that is going to save the day. Uh, and we are, you know, completely complicit in the system that actually causes this kind of crime. And we see this um, uh, figure who comes to us and confronts us with a future that we're not ready to accept. I think real protest is about showing pictures of what things can be so like Bonhoeffer who was this amazing Nazi resistor who's a huge hero of mine he talks about we must bandage those who um, are underneath uh, the wheel but there comes a time where we must drive a spoke in the wheel itself and to engage in actions whether it be with Love Makes Away, where you've seen um, over uh, 200 faith leaders risk a, a arrest to see children released from detention, um, moving towards all people being released from detention. They're ways of like actually saying business as usual is costing us our soul. Like this is actually we're closing in on ourselves and our the hardness of heart, which is creeping over Australia, you know that um, giving to uh, charities and NGOs is like down for the first time in something like two decades or something in Australia. And it's at the same time when we're having politicians who have been pumping out so much fear, so much fear, where we, we don't trust each other. And the vision of who we are is like so brittle and frail that we need to close in. And so we watch like... Um, uh, shows that how we can improve our backyard or do something in the kitchen because we all want control over something and this feels too overwhelming because we don't trust our hearts can actually hold the pain that we see in the world but isn't the idea also at the heart at the very heart of like the capitalist system and i'm not like some anti-capitalist i mean mm. i charge people to come and see my show <laughs> i've got a nice house by sydney harbour i'm not going to here to preach about like that sort of thing but 
inherent in that system is this idea of competition, you know, mm. and I feel like we're at an unhealthy point in that now mm. where, you know, you can see it in the inequality sense, like, you know, mm. capitalism paid a part in the development of like particularly, you know, the first world yeah. and it's been good for a lot of different countries, but now it's becoming like, you know, the workers are working harder for less and the people at the top are making yeah. so much more, but it's also pitted us all against each other in the streets. Yeah. You feel it when you're out in public totally. now. Yeah. The best it's, way for us to get around in public spaces is to appreciate that it's a shared space. <laughs> like, you can do whatever the fuck you want in your own house. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, as long yeah. as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Yeah. I honestly am very libertarian in that. It's your place. Mm. You do whatever you want within those walls. Mm. But once you go out in a shared space and a public space and you're with other people, there just should be a certain way that we act in that space. Well, it's, Go it's, home and put on your hood or go home and take your drugs or go home and, you know, like, you know, be whatever you want to be. Like, mm. have some weird orgy with some consent other people or whatever it is that you want to do but when you're in the street just maybe get off your fucking phone and walk at the same pace as everyone else it's it's then, why it's know. why the phantom menace sucked so hard <laughs> it's because george lucas didn't have to compete there were no right. actual like um it was he had so much power concentrated at the top he made the f- first three or the the last three or whatever it's going to be once a new one's come mm-hmm. out he made the good ones in the late 70s and sure. early 80s and then he like has so much power that well, who am i to actually challenge the fact that you've basically written a boring script about politics and put bloody Jar Jar Binks and like wrecked, took a huge dump on my childhood. Well, also, I would have thought from the point of view of like, you know, someone who believes... And look, I, you know, I loved the X-Files and the thing that I always loved about the X-Files was that poster behind Mulder that said, I want to believe. Mm. And I'm like that. I mm. want to believe in mm. things. I want to believe there's more to the world than what mm. we see. You know, I've had experiences on like psychedelic drugs or through mm. like, you know, I've felt emotions. I have connections with mm. people that I can't explain through simple evolution or mm. science. And, you know, there are a myriad, there are more things that I can't comprehend or explain about the world. Mm. You know, when I, I went to on my birthday, I love every Every year to go to uh, the observatory in LA, yeah, and wow. I they have this history of the universe yeah. like thing, and it shows you how tiny we are That's in right. the corner of the universe. Yeah. And at once you have two thoughts about that, which is a we've got to be an accident, and this whole thing is clearly just an accident in the corner of the universe. But the other one is like how could we be an act like how could this mm. be anything other than mm. like something that's been created because yeah. it makes no fucking sense yeah, in yeah. way right so i like the idea of belief and i'm i i i'm fascinated by that idea of belief what was the point i was trying to make there jared um well, it, it's like um the, the the first time uh we hung out together and talking about um uh, a mate, Pete Rollins, he's a philosopher and he says um uh, to believe is human to doubt is divine Right. And um, we want answers. We want easy solutions. We want, and I am very wary of faith, which says, um, "Oh, you, you know that sense of awe you feel well? That's Jesus." Right. Like um, uh, now, it's it's not that I don't think the mystery that is revealed in the life of Jesus is like, but that's that's so cheap. Fourteen point five, maybe six billion years. Our universe, like that sense of like how. Um, if, if faith is simple explanations to mysteries that like should leave us in awe, how sad that we would rob ourselves of that sense of like how like th- that's what worship should bring us to that sense of and and scripture. Well, it's like that line from the Princess Bride: "Life is pain." Anyone who tells you anything differently trying to sell you something. That's right. And it's like you know, I think that idea that we look at these things, whether it be religion or whether it be self help or whether 
mm. be like a diet or a fad or yeah. whatever that like oh this will solve my problems yeah or this will be the solution to yeah. everything rather than it being a set of guidelines that people have used to comprehend the infinite mystery that is our lives mm. like for me but even the set of guideline provides a, a place for like you read the book of job and people have got these takes on the book of job is like oh there's all these rational explanations for like um job's response isn't like oh it's your will i guess like the fact that my life has sucked and everything's destroyed and my family's dead and i've lost everything there's a, a reason or a no what you're left with is like there is no explanation there is just like the vastness of what is reality and our place in it and like the the role of faith is not to um, explain those things away. It's to help us um, undergo those things. It's to help us uh, um, not understand, but like be open to, and so that we we walk away limping out of the reality that um, and to to dare to name that mystery to be love, which I do because of the incarnation. I mean, that's you know card carrying God bother. Sure, that's my yeah, deal. Yeah, that's really um, uh, isn't to provide easy answers, but to actually just live into the questions in such way that um, uh, speaks of the beauty that I, I want to live in such a way to quote Dorothy Day that my life wouldn't make sense uh, unless God existed. Um, or Abraham Heschel puts it that um, the famous uh, 20th century rabbi that um, uh, survived uh, Nazi Germany uh, uh, puts it that there is no proof for God. There are only witnesses. I think Hopefully what people experience here is what it is to live out of the Christian story in ways where you don't go away going, Jared is some super saint, but you go, Jared is just problematic, messed up as me, and yet he's involved himself in a community that means that different things are possible because like undergoing an imagination and telling a different story that is actually um, not coercive and lords it over other people but invites people to tell their stories as we explore this stuff together. I think that's a... It's a radically different take from the way that most people talk about faith. Uh, death. I always like to ask people about death. <laughs> um, do And I think you more than anyone, I'm interested to hear what your response is. What do you think happens when we die? Do you have a sense of like what you think, like, you know, do you comprehend even? Like, is there is there possible? Because there's a theory that I have, the more that I think about these topics, is that I just think that we're at a stage of our evolution or our whatever, our mm. place in the timeline that is this planet and is this world, where our brains are probably not um, fully developed enough to understand the answer, even if there was one particular answer, mm. or, you know, or, or death or God or the universe or energy or what any of that meant. Mm. You know, we don't really comprehend it. But I like to know what people think. Do you think about it? Do you think like, oh, yeah, okay, well, when I die, because of the faith that I have, I think this will happen? Hmm. Or yeah, what? I think um, I'll stop breathing and my heart will stop. And yeah. then my body will sh- shut down and I'll crap my decks and wet myself like everybody else. But you're I like, mean, you don't have post- to do all those things. <laughs> but, but it's a lively option. <laughs> but it is. It, it certainly um, is on the board. Far more interesting for me is not life after death, but life after life after death. By that, I mean the, um, the, the Hebraic hope um, is not that uh, I will go to be someplace, but someday reality will be such that um, the the consciousness that we are will again be configured in uh, a physical reality where um, the, the justice and the mercy and uh, the love and the compassion 
um, that we get senses of now in, in um, uh, music and art and great comedy and uh, poetry and uh, like that kind of stuff that um, one day that very presence of that will flood everything. And my hope is that I open the floodgate of that being in my life today where I get out of the way and something, um, you know what I'm saying, I'm not going to be vague, like the Holy Spirit or like sure. that's actually, and in terms of life after death, I, I really think that it's, um, uh, I'm not sure whether it's asleep, I'm not sure whether it's like, uh, you can't, like, I have no idea, but I know that um, how the story, like I've literally been immersed into operates is one day the hope is that love will infuse everything and we can be a part of that and it's not out there in the clouds kind of like it, it's somehow um and that for the early um like first century jews the belief in resurrection wasn't hey look jesus is proof that like he's god because he's back it was like no resurrection was supposed to happen at the end of time when the world was actually being made right and suddenly in the middle of history this has happened and they thought yeah so that's why we're not going to fight wars anymore uh that's why we're putting down our swords that's why we're going to share all in common that's why because we actually believe that the end is starting hopefully you know it's a william gibson quote hopefully that um this is like the future hasn't been well distributed yet but this is like a little distribution of the future i think all of us live like what we think the reality after death is all of us people of faith or or, or not that you look at our lives and um the shocking thing of my life will is how little i actually believe like um do I believe love conquers death? Sometimes at my best, I get caught out and find myself participating in something that isn't me, um, uh, but speaks of like maybe who I'm created to be. And I think that's like for, for all of us. But there, there's this sense of um, uh, it's, it's more than that. And that's, that's how I think the story is supposed to work. What scares you most? My own darkness, um, my own pain like my own um uh capacity to um uh shift one form of addiction to another and you can do that with religion and everything else as well like it just can be another way of you know hitting up Um, yeah i mean absolutely and that but that also isn't necessarily always a bad thing. Like you talked before mm. about the idea of like sometimes, you know, people are criticized like, mm. oh, he's only doing that to make himself feel good. And you're like, mm. yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but he's doing something really nice for someone else. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. if he feels good at the end of the day about yeah. that as well, probably means you'll do it again. Yeah. But th- that's, a, that's a sober way of looking at it where there's actually like uh, awareness that uh, actually we're, we're made for one another. Right. That um, uh, the way we find our lives is by losing our lives in the service of others. That that's actually... Um, what we're made for like when when any of us are at our best it's like we're actually at the best of others as well and life isn't about us on uh, hack yesterday um, as I was taking a friend to the hospital um, after a concussion um, uh, a woman rang in about um, uh, depression and they were talking about how her psychiatrist uh, or psychologist asked her what are you doing um, uh, in terms of charity work or volunteering and I just thought it was an amazing insight that, like, for any of us who struggle, um, actually rolling up our sleeves and coming alongside somebody else, uh, when we're turned in upon ourselves, which was Luther's definition of sin, a human being turned in upon ourselves, like, it leads 
you know, to death. But when we turn out towards others, we find the kind of connections which mean that we go, they're just like me, just trying to have the best go at it that they can as well. And maybe I can be a part of that best go for them. Uh, okay, I, I want to finish up in a minute because we've banged on for ages, but uh, <laughs> I could actually talk to you for hours more. But, uh, you know, I've got a show to do tonight and That's I'm right. sure you've got other things to do with your day. Well, and so, then go to your show, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're going to come to the show Yeah, tonight? you bet. Uh, did, did I give you tickets? You didn't buy tickets, did you? I haven't bought tickets in the hope of... Uh, oh, no, I'll give you tickets. Oh, yeah. Cool. I was like, yeah. I, I'm always embarrassed when my... I shouldn't say this on the right, on, but I'm going to... Anyway. Yeah, you know but what's going to happen yeah, now. It's like, it's now like, everyone's going to hit I me I got the woo hiccup. No, 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 but absolutely. Like, I hate when my friends... Sometimes my friends will be like, oh, no, we bought tickets. I'm like, I... Like... I want to give you tickets to my show. I'm doing fine. There's plenty of other people coming who bought tickets. But B, if you really want to support me, just give me the fucking money. Because because <laughs> by the time you pay for the ticket and like my manager gets their cart and the venue gets their cart and you're spending $7.50 on Ticketek to print it out at home, I'm not seeing that money. You're printing it out at home and Ticketek's taking $7.50 you're complaining to me about. Just buy me a drink. <laughs> But um, uh, what I wanted to ask you about was you speak about love all the time. Mm. Um, uh, Do you hate? Mm. Like, is it something that is like still part of your, you know, do you find yourself in moments of hate? And when you find yourself in those moments, how do you you deal with that or how do you process that? Yeah. I mean, um, without talking about on this podcast, some of the stuff of my childhood that makes – that easy um just even the reality of uh like a bunch of us were strip searched by police in what the human rights law center called a deliberate abuse of police powers and i had to listen to um my wife sob in a police station as um she pleaded with police um, because of her own history not to do this to her and i see a lawyer beforehand and uh, hearing police say um if you continue to resist, you'll be forcibly strip searched. Um, you bet. I hate like um, I hate everything. Listening to I was at Younger Hills Detention Centre on Thursday and um, listening to the stories of new friends and what they've survived. And I passed Acacia Prison where I, I go out and visit on the way to get to Younger Hills. And um, at least at Acacia, you know when. Y- you're up for probation you know when your sentence is over or you know you'll be there for life i met with somebody who'd been in there for three and a half years you you bet i hate um uh part of my story is like um i'll have nightmares about things that happened to me as a a a kid and hatred is um is in one sense very natural um but i don't i don't want to be named by it and forgiveness for me isn't like a um something i do for others forgiveness is what means that like i no longer have to um have my gravitational pull be that experience yeah no longer like i'm actually you you don't have to affect me and this thing does not have to affect me in the negative way that it has anymore it it doesn't have to control me it doesn't have to name me it's not who i am it's not the base of my experience and and whatever positive i have taken from it whatever it's made me good is mine yeah and i do not owe it to that incident yeah like i think that's one of the hardest things about people who have been have have done great things because terrible things, not because, yeah. but because, you know, like yeah. the terrible thing that happened is part of the reason they're now doing something yeah, really yeah. great. Yeah. And I think people 
can find it hard yeah. to go, would I have become this person I am that I now like and yeah. this life that I have that I like the person I am? <laughs> One of the strangely what- comforting things, like we were talking about comfort before, it's a horrific kind of comfort, but the, the, the resurrected Jesus has scars. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like, he doesn't need to. <laughs> like, it's like, here, remember, yeah. and, and yet there is this um, forgiveness, there is this, like, um, and... Like that's that's a that's a dark form of comfort right. that um, there there is, um, yeah. I mean, Does, how, how bizarre! Like, and this is what we said. So we we did this thing where we came out of court and we actually stripped down to our underwear yep. and walked back to where we were strip searched. And one of the things we said on the steps of court that at the center of our faith, uh, my faith, is a symbol of um, torture um, and intimidation that we believe has been transformed into a symbol of love and forgiveness or, or um, freedom, I think I said. Like, I mean, it's a freaking cross. That's horrific. And yet, well, it's central in my faith that even a crucifixion can be turned into, like, love can still be victorious there. Uh we didn't explain why you got strip searched. And I think it's mm. important to get the context like of how outrageous it was by you explaining what reason, who you were with and what reason it was that you guys got. I mean, people can yeah. read more about it afterwards. I yeah, don't yeah. Hope they do. But t- tell why, yeah, why you dangerous criminals got strip searched. Uh, they thought that eight of us faith leaders might be concealing weapons or yeah. drugs. Well, you know, that well-known uh, <laughs> you know, faith leaders with their weapons and drugs. I mean, are they watching American TV? Where do they get the idea that I mean, we- faith leaders have weapons? Like, seriously. Like, um, but I, mean, you, I the, mean, I know that you carry a pair of nunchucks with you at all times. Yes. Like. <laughs> but, like, in, in the um, strip search, they, like, all, all the way down and standing there completely naked and they're like, lift your testicles. And I'm like, sorry? And they're like, lift your testicles. And I'm like, why? And they're like, we need to make sure you're not concealing a weapon. Mm. I mean, like... That's where you keep them. It's otherwise a like phenomenal compliment, right? That they right. think behind my wedding tackle I can heal, a, like hide a, a, a weapon. But given the context, it's just like here's deliberate intimidation to show like how and little value we're treating you. When right. like we baked muffins and like biscuits and gave them to police officers who ate them during the action, they right. shook our hands beforehand and said it's admirable what you're doing. And then we get back to the watch house and they strip search us because they've got an order to do so for weapons and for drugs like i mean it's amazing isn't it that uh like that they ate your food yeah. <laughs> like i mean if you were going to do them any harm yeah that's right you could have just poisoned the cookies do you know what i mean <laughs> like they really haven't thought this through they're terrible at it and i know we joke about it but this is a was done to degrade and humiliate you yeah i mean that's why it was done yeah that no one could have honestly believed that you had drugs or weapons yeah it was done in order to say this is what we're doing to you to yeah. know that to say stop yep we're sick of you guys causing us a problem yeah yeah and this is how we're sending the message yep i mean it's a horrible thing to think that that happens still in our country and, and most of the time it doesn't happen to white, white male people, straight right. middle class people like me most of the time it, it happens to uh, people who others don't think about because they are in and out of lockup all the time and that they don't necessarily have the capacity to, to be challenge able to it and, challenge yeah. it or to contact a lawyer yeah. or to be able to like even the you know maybe the 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 educational standards yeah. or the yeah definitely or even be told that they can talk to you know police because they've never had an experience in their life where that's gone well for them yeah 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's crazy how terrible that still is. Mm. I mean, everywhere, but still mm. here. Um, all right. Uh, I've asked you about all the major things I normally try to ask people about, <laughs> but I do, and I don't want to get, I don't, uh, it doesn't need to be specific, but I like to ask people this question as well. Um, what about your philosophy to love? Like, mm. as in, I know that you've talked about love a lot, like the mm. concept of love, but now I mean more like, and again, is personal or not personal as you want to be? I don't. This you asking like, about the bedroom, Phil? Will? Well, like, is that I'm like- not asking specifically <laughs> about the bedroom, but I'm asking about the way that you know you, you as you use love and you talk about love so much mm. in a broader sense in your contribution to society, right? Mm. And the way that you view the world. But most of us talk about love in the way that we love our children, or love yeah. our partner, or love our pets, or whatever you know, love our yeah, friends. Yeah. So I guess now I want to transition from you know that first concept to just that more specifically thing is it the same as you do you love all that or do you have a very different way that you love and react to you know that tradi- what we'd call love you yeah know I mean? like well i'm not saying that i love my enemies in the same way that i love my wife, wife. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good line though that's uh hey, that would be inappropriate yeah, love your enemies love you like you love your wife that's a, <laughs> that's a hold you hot take yeah Hand jobs of peace. I mean, this is a non-violent but still very disturbing protest. I didn't think we were both meant to be naked. (laughs) Just checking for weapons. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, flashbacks. flashbacks. No. um, uh, So yeah, clearly there's different um, different forms uh, of. Love, but in the same way that at the start you talked about like that sense of invisibility of some people, I think love sometimes just starts with people being seen and people being heard. Uh, um, uh, the, the love in practice when you get invited to the gig to speak about refugees in a panel of like Australia's top QCs and all the rest and you have to go, are there any people who have been refugees talking? And they're like, no, but no one else has raised that. Like that's an awkward kind of love but there's also like um if if my boy tyson doesn't feel like he's number one um in and that he's been sacrificed on the altar of um doing good to or challenging the system or like whatever that's pretty messed up like that's that's pretty pretty sad and in those things it's a little ways the stuff that people don't see like um uh thoughtfulness towards uh, partner and being present and um, uh, uh, being the kind of dad where your kid goes, I love what you're on about instead of I'm in reaction to what you're on about. Dad, I'm uh, I'm just going to trade stocks the rest of my life because uh, I, I hate the way I've been treated despite all this like great stuff. Happening. I mean, you could pretty much create the greatest capitalist of all time. <laughs> Like, do you know what I mean? Like, if he went the other way, he was like, screw this. He'd probably be the next Donald Trump. That's why, that's what you've created. This is a. Which, which, like, it, it's, um, was it a loony cartoon where it's got, like, all these people, um, protesting and there's this one guy at the back and he's holding a sign and it just says, I hate my dad. And, <laughs> like, it's like, save the whales, like, stop the nukes. And one guy at the back that just says, I hate my dad. And, um, uh, that's why I think that most of the time when we think about how we're going to respond, the we is very small and we need to um, have uh, open we's. It sounds so wrong. It does, doesn't um, it? I don't, I'm glad I don't speak in public for a living or something. Um, <laughs> uh, but like we need to find a way of having an us that is like um, permeable. That still sounds like wrong. But you know what I'm saying? Like a, a sense of um, 
uh, that it doesn't come at the cost of others. Like saying no to scapegoating others while having a scapegoat in your own midst is pretty messed up and to be aware of that kind of stuff. So as well as we love in terms of like the Greek, the the eros, that romantic love or um, the phile, that kind of brotherly or um, uh, uh, familial love, agape, which is that word for, um, you know, that, that sense of... Greek alcohol. the 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 love which um uh is um unrelenting in its um uh, tenderness and pursuit of uh uh, a just reconciliation i think all the other loves are connected to that otherwise it becomes another form of self-propaganda okay so tell us what uh i tell people where they can find you where they can learn more about you like in the the stuff that you're doing if they want to know more about that where's where's the best place for them to find that information uh probably twitter or facebook okay what's your twitter um if you just search um will underscore anderson uh, and look at the at replies <laughs> I was going to say after your name comes yeah. up because I quote you in my uh, bio oh, okay. my name comes up which right. uh, nice uh, um, otherwise like Jared J-A-R-R-O-D McKenna um, or Facebook which I think is Jared and Mates which is a goal I'd like to have some friends at some stage and um, tell me what you're specifically concentrating on at the moment and I think yeah. after this if people have made it hopefully people have made it the whole way through I'd like to think that everyone listens the whole way through to each of them but maybe <laughs> that doesn't happen but I, but I hope that is the case um what i think there might be some people at the end of this going all right so yeah let's imagine at least that there are some people who are like you know what i've listened to this and i want to do something hmm. what's the first something that people could do like give give us a tip yeah um uh thanks to the wonders of the googles you can use um uh googles to say who's helping refugees in my city uh, if you're in Perth, there's amazing things like CARAD, Humanitarian Project. If you're in Melbourne, um, uh, Asylum Seekers Resource Centre in Adelaide, the welcomes. I mean, around Australia, there are incredible things. We're not like franchising or building empires or anything else. I mean, if you're like, looking for a church that um, uh, is hopefully for broken, messed up people like me but want to be more like Jesus, you're more than welcome to rock up to West City. Uh, common grace for the God botherers who, who want to actually change the conversation and make sure that it's not dominated by those who are known for their hatred instead of their love. Um, and First Home Project has a Facebook page. So um, if that's... Uh, but yeah, people don't have to connect with what we're doing. I would encourage people to find good stuff that's actually happening in their neighbourhood, their neck of the woods, and uh, encourage the people who you know, um, don't have amazing opportunities like hanging out with you and getting to chew the fat, uh, but do incredible stuff day in, day out, and people don't really know about it. So thank you, Googles. Uh, Well, mate, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for this. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, uh, I think this uh, may not be the longest one, but it's going to be very close to being the longest one, I think. (laughs) I think we've done an hour and 55. In fact, I I feel like it's bad. I actually feel like it's bad for us to stop before two hours. It feels like we're going to get so close. So I've not done this before. uh, uh, Well, next time, can I ask you some questions? I really do Well, I was about to say, we've got five more minutes. I'm just going to pause it just for a second so I can get a glass of water. I feel so comfortable here. I just got up, paused this, got up, went to the fridge, got myself a glass of water. Didn't get you anything, even though your water is finished. There was only a tiny little bit of water. I didn't even get myself a glass of water. I got myself a, a quarter, of sips quarter of water. water. 
Never done this before, but you did say you want to ask me a question at the end. Why don't you ask me a question? And that's how we'll get the extra five minutes. So you can ask me whatever you want, and I will, uh, and we can talk for at least four minutes. So, so often um, uh, in your art, it requires vulnerability, given the way that you do it. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate what to share and what not to share? Um, uh, or do you just go, hey, this is cheap therapy, I'm just going to... Oh, no, 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 I don't look at it like that. And uh, I certainly don't look at it like that. I always think if I'm going to process something, so often the things that I'm talking about aren't really the things that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Like, they, like I said about the idea of parables, these are stories mm. where so often, you know, the story about being locked, you'll see this tonight, but a story about being locked out of the hotel in like without my pants on isn't the, I mean it is a story about that but it's a story about my vulnerabilities and there's yeah. a story about me being a different person and it's a story about what I fear and all yeah. those sort of things I have one of those stories not without pants but needing to go to the toilet and they'd actually changed my hotel room they'd upgraded me mm. given me the key and I knocked on the door and I could hear this elderly couple who walked in talking about like where they go to church and stuff. So I'm in Chicago, an elderly American couple, and um, I'm like, I'm desperately, I'm not feeling well. Please, man. Like, I wet my pants. I wet my pants in like that, and they wouldn't let me in. And in I, terms of like, I think the you'll judgment, call that an open way. An open way. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a- that's why they pay you the big bucks, Will. That was good. Uh, I keep and i say this to people all the time because i i mean i've got 500 hours of podcasts i've done radio i've like you know done 20 different stand-up shows like Mm. i've revealed a lot of myself over the years but i reveal what i want of myself yeah like there is a great part of my life my private life i don't talk about my relationship on stage Mm. that is private it is between me and another person who does not want to be involved in show business yeah and so that is a whole part of my life that i just choose that's our life that's our moment and it's our world like i'll reference it it's not like you know i don't want people to know that she like you know that she exists and everything but i'm not the (laughs) person who's like because i think that would be awful as well to pretend that there's this person that isn't there but she doesn't want to be part of this world and she Mm. doesn't want her stories to be told and and i think that she like likes and loves a different me to the one that the world gets to see yeah yeah totally so, firstly, it's a curated, curated version. Mm. Secondly, I try to work in one step away from the actual thing. So, mm. if I am talking about something very painful, I will take, okay, how can I come up with a metaphor or an analogy or a story that represents this? Like, So, this whole show that you will see mm. tonight actually has to do with a revelation I had uh, when I tried the drug DMT, which is mm. a psychedelic drug that you know some people believe gives you an insight into mm. the nature of existence. And during an experience I had with that, I had something that I wanted to reflect as an overall feeling about the way that we should relate to each other yeah, yeah. and the nature of our interconnectedness yeah. and how I saw life and the world. Yeah. But I didn't want to write that story. I didn't want to go, I took DMT and here's what I learned. You know what I mean? <laughs> so instead yeah. I wrote a show that is full of metaphors or stories that reflect the exact point or thing that i want to discuss but i do it in a way that i can connect to that story every night uh when i when amy my partner and i Mm. uh broke up uh, many years ago um you know for a while and it was a pretty bad breakup and i was going through a terrible time and i used Mm. to talk about not about her but about my what i was going through Mm. um on stage and i I developed some really good material around Mm. it that people really enjoyed and connected with but three months later, when that wasn't the scenario I was living anymore, the idea of going on stage 
and mm. recreating those emotions or recreating yeah. that thing for the sake of the story, yeah. I don't think it's a very healthy way to perform or live your life. Yeah, yeah. So insofar as it's therapeutic, I do think there is a therapeutic aspect, but I yeah. really take the things a step away from yeah. what they actually are yeah. and then can work on them in a way that is like a safer space. Yeah. Which, I mean, as a pastor, um, what you describe in terms of those mountaintop experiences, whether they be drug-induced mysticism or, or just like those experiences that open us up, even when you have those experiences, there's still the hard work of like walking down the mountain and, and walking to what you've seen on the horizon. And it sounds like in telling these stories, you're actually telling stories of like doing the hard work of walking it out. Um, but it comes from that place of what you've seen. Like it comes from that, like things will open up. I saw things here and, but it's so much harder to actually take that connection and those things that we feel and then go, okay, what does that mean on Monday? Um, or once I come down or <laughs> no, but that's absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the great joys of my job is mm. that I get an opportunity to every night find out what I think. Yeah, And I get to go out on stage and I get to say, and that's why it's not written down. That's why yeah. the stories change and evolve is because sometimes my perspective on it has yeah, changed wow. or evolved. Because yeah. I'm a different person here in October doing my shows in Perth yeah. than I was in February doing my shows in Adelaide. Yeah. I'm just a different person. Yeah. Like I'm in a different place in my life. My yeah. world is different. A whole bunch of different things have happened this year mm. as they do every year. Yeah. And if that's not reflected in the show and in the way that I talk yeah, about yeah. things and in my perspective on those things, then I don't think you're really connecting with it in the way that you should. Yeah, totally. That said, the toughest time is will be – so tonight is the final show of the tour mm. for 2015, which means the minute we're done tonight, really I'm thinking about what next year's show will be. Hmm. And that's terrifying because mm. now I have a blank page. I could mm. do anything, which mm. is wonderful. But I don't but know what it is that I would You absorb incredible... Well, after our first um, ever conversation, after you were interviewing Billy Corgan, um, and um, then your gig the next day, you took stuff in our conversation, um, which I still tell people about, because I thought like um, it was brilliant. I mean, you expressed it in language that I wouldn't, but... Um, <laughs> you, 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 yes, um, yes. You, you and my nana will agree on that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, uh, you talked about like you didn't put it like this. You didn't use the word incarnation, or but like if if what we see in Jesus is what we get in God, um, you were like, well, I don't think he's going to send all these people to hell, and that's how you ended the show at at Splendor. And I was like, I didn't know how much you're actually taking it, and I was so impressed by the way that. So you obviously move in lots of different circles, take lots of little bits in. In terms of how you process and, and who you look to, who who are the great comedians for you that you go, I'm not them, I can't do what they do, but there's something of what they do that helps me be me more me. That's interesting. Um, my favourite comedians at the moment are all people who aren't like me because hmm. I've now at a point in my life where like going to comedy – and this is just if you eventually get to the point and partly because mm. of the way I work. And mm. you're absolutely right. I soak up everything. Yeah. That's my method. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. the best way for me to write, and this is what people don't really understand, is because I, I watch every TV show, I read everything, I yeah. talk to as many people as I can. Yeah. And it all kind of just then hopefully comes out as like a, like, you know, I take little bits of all of yeah, it. Yeah. You know? That's what I am. I'm a bit of a scavenger for like, yeah, and it's, it's awesome. in the same way as, you know, my belief system. Yeah. Like, you know, I've always been a big believer in, well, if, it, if they've got a couple of good things that work yeah. for me, yeah. then sure, I'll have those bits yeah. and then can I have a bit of, these two over here seem to work 
work for me. You know, not all those 10 work for me, but I, <laughs> three or four of them seem to make a lot of sense. <laughs> One's not going to be problematic anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so there, there is certainly that in my process. But originally, the people who inspired me, I referenced some of them earlier. George Carlin was mm. the first one. Mm. George Carlin was the one where I was like, ah, oh, this is a person who's... And this is the thing that sometimes people don't get about my work, and I'm not an explainer of my work in that in that sure. regard. Like it, it stands by itself, yeah. and you can take it to mean or be whatever you. And people are always also processing it through their own prism and yeah. the way that they think. So I have no control over. Yeah, that. yeah, totally. Only all I can do is kind of put it out there. But Carlin and the thing I got about him, and the thing that I hope that is in my work, even though I hope that it's not like out there on Front Street. Mm. is that I'm on the side of the audience. Yeah. Like, I'm on the side of you guys. Yeah. And we should be fighting, you know, the powerful and yeah. the people who are keeping us down. And yeah, the, yeah. That's why you know, I love the people Like, I mean, that's the perspective of the show. Yeah, Always. Yeah. Yep. Like, you know, and that came from Carlin. Mm. Carlin, you always got the impression that the people he wanted to take down, we were mentioning that before, and it's like about kicking up or kicking down. Mm. And like, I think that comedy at its best kicks, kicks up. up. Yeah. And the comedy, when my comedy, when it's at been at its meanest or its worst or its easiest, there's always been, you know, easy mm. jokes, kicking mm. down. I've written this uh, political show, for example, mm. um, that I'm doing in Sydney about, about Australian politics. And one of the challenges I set myself, it's not something I say in the show and it, it actually wasn't even something that I was going to say out loud until we had this conversation. Mm. It was just something for me. But it was like, I am not going to make one joke in this show about somebody's personal appearance. Mm. Like, you know, I'm not going to use their appearance or wow. the way they look or whatever to get a cheap laugh at the expense of, you know, the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. I just want to talk about the ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want yeah. to talk That's about, incredible. you know, what they... And, but... Glasshouse, when we used to do that in the old days, I mean, the amount of jokes we made about politicians' appearances and what they dressed like and mm. what they looked like. And I'm not saying that I regret that time in my sure. life. I'm not saying... That's what 25-year-old kids should do. But I'm not that <laughs> 25, anymore. 25, yeah. You know? I'm, I'm 41 years old. I'm 42 yeah. years old. I, I, I'm 42 in January. I've been doing this 20 years. Yeah. Maybe I'm better than that now. Maybe there's an, you know, a level on which that I can attack this that yeah. is more complex and more interesting. So, yeah. um, George Carlin, definitely. He mm. was attacking... Um, I loved Richard Pryor. For mm. me, that was like, I mean, even though the nicest compliment I ever got, and this is going to sound so ridiculous to people, so now I'm hoping they haven't made it this far in. <laughs> but I was in Philadelphia doing a week of shows in Philadelphia just last year, and a guy said to me afterwards, like a big black bouncer came up to me and said, I saw you a lot of comedy here, but I really like the heart in your comedy. And he goes, you reminded me of like a white Richard Pryor. Wow, And that incredible. is not anything that anyone has ever said to me, yeah. and I found it ridiculous, but... I got what he was saying was, what yeah. he just meant was I had a point I was, like there was yeah. a... Well, it's the humanity. That's what impresses yeah. me with the stuff that you share. Not only is it smart, uh, not only is it like, well, like you're so good at actually executing what you do, but there, you, you ask people into something that's more expansive. And that's always been my attitude even to the issue stuff. Mm. Like, you know, my attitude is always, look, there are some people on either side that there's hardliners who believe... So let's talk about yeah, marriage equality. That's an mm. easy one, right, mm. to be able to use the example. Mm. My attitude is always, yes, of course, there's the hardliners who are never going to believe in it. Mm. And there's the people who are like, you know, hardline protesters who think you should just be telling people that they're homophobes or whatever. Mm. But the area that I'm interested in is... I would say that 75% of my audience probably already sure. agree with what, you know, like, you know, what I yeah. agree. but it's the 25% who could agree with it. Yeah. Like the best letters I ever get are from like, particularly young guys and stuff who'd be yeah. like, you know what? I'd never really thought about it, yeah, you, know, wow. like, you know, in the way that, that way. 
But because you didn't tell me I was an idiot, because you didn't like exclude me from it, you included me. You just made it, presented it like... And so a lot of the time, that's what I try to do with my work as well, is give people an easy in to a concept that will take them into an interesting place. Yeah. Like really what I'm just trying to do is open the door in a funny way. Yeah. And then if you go through it, yeah. like there are millions of people who are better qualified and more interesting mm. and more researched and have better perspectives on those topics to share than I do. Mm. Sorry, we've been banging on for so long. <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's chelsea <laughs> poor chelsea's just walked through are you guys you guys still talking <laughs> um so uh, uh, dreadlocks aren't a requirement here we're actually the only people with dreadlocks oh, right yeah. okay. everybody else yeah, yeah. No, that, I, I did love that you both have dreadlocks right, sorry brilliant. To, way to uh, reaffirm stereotypes so uh so the um, uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So I always just like to think that hopefully I'm letting you into that world. Mm. I don't pretend to be an expert and mm. I don't pretend to think that I have all or any of the answers mm. necessarily. But I'm hoping that if you're a person who's almost... I'll get Justin Hamilton, who does support for me, has a great piece mm. about Adam Goods and the booing of Adam Goods. Yeah, right. And what it says about Australia. Mm. And we did it in Sydney, you know, at, where Adam Goods plays, you know, and it... It was the best bit of material I've ever seen him do. Wow. But of course, last night we've come to Perth. Yeah, that's right. And Perth Frio is the fans. place where yeah. he was actually booed the yeah. most. And Justin went on stage and he did that bit. And I would like to think, and I'm I'm pretty confident. I mean, it went well. Mm. It didn't go as well it went in Sydney, <laughs> but it went well because yeah. the majority of my audience probably aren't the booers either. Yeah, you know. But there's some of them. Yeah. Or there's some of them who defended the Boers yep. in that crowd. Yeah. And they're the ones that are the ones that you can, you know, yeah, if you yeah, include yeah. them, yeah. if you present it in a way that makes sense, if yep. you like make, you know, you go, this is a fun side of this argument to be on. Yeah. All you want is to give people permission or that argument that next time their friends say something about Adam Goods, yeah. that they're like, oh no, click, 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 click. Yeah, yeah, and they totally. can go, oh no, I have yeah. permission to say this thing that perhaps I suspected in my heart anyway, yeah. but no one has ever said that was what comedy was to me so i'm this mm. kid in the country you know where just because i was interested in different things you know like i'm getting called a poof and i'm yeah, yeah. like you know being you know feeling that or but but i just had these ideas in my head about the way that the world you know was and the way that people should be treated and why it was important to you know stick up for some things or why you know i mean i've been doing marriage equality material for yeah. 18 years yeah yeah it's, like 18 yeah. years it, yeah. It's crazy to me that a 22-year-old stand-up comedian who was, grew up on a farm, you know, on the mm. same road as his granddad grew up on. Wow. Like, I mean, I, I just... And how I got to those ideas was through comedy. Yeah. The first time I heard people talking about that way of the world was comedy. So it was yeah. people like, uh, weirdly enough, Whoopi Goldberg. People won't mm. remember this, but there was this album that she had in the 70s called Fontaine, Why Am I Straight? And it's like this, it has an amazing take on both abortion and on uh, marriage equality that at that time must have been some of the most revolutionary wow. stand-up comedy going around. Yeah, wow. I mean, obviously Bill Hicks was a major yeah. influence on me, you know, particularly when I was starting out as a comedian. And then the Aussies, like Greg Fleet, Anthony Morgan, hmm. um, Rod Quantock, Wendy hmm. Harmer, yeah. Doug Anthony Allstars. That was, that was, and they all, in their own ways, were doing something that was socio-political. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like Morgan would tell these long-form you know, stories, but they'd be, you know, he'd be very angry at politics and he'd be so... I mean, I remember seeing him tell a story for 40 minutes at the Prince Patrick Hotel one night about... Literally, it was about going down on a woman, but it could have been a. It literally, it was a celebration of beauty and mm. humanity mm. and feminism mm. in a way that I've not ever seen since. You yeah. know, like 
Greg Fleet used to be able to communicate with people about the idea of, I mean, now he's a you know 30-year on and off junkie, but the idea of being broken and trying to fix yourself and constantly failing in that world, like, open mm. my eyes. The Doug Anthony All-Stars, their whole idea was to, you know, they were to mess up the system and mm. to pull down the system and mm. to fuck with what people's ideas yeah, of yeah. art was. Wendy Harmer hosting the big gig, a woman, this feisty woman out the charge. I mean, now as a person who knows how television works and knows yeah. how hard it would have been yeah. to host that fucking sure. mess of a show. Yeah. Like, it amazes me that when that didn't lead to a whole bunch... Like, who's the Wendy Harmer hosting a show on Australian television now? Yeah. There isn't one. Yeah. And it's not that those comedians aren't out there. It's no. just like, would they get a Guernsey it's with crazy. the current climate? Yeah. So, there was a whole bunch of them who really inspired me. And, you know, very much I was, you know, amalgam of all those people when I first mm. started. All right. We definitely did... Uh, this is definitely the longest one now. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Uh, we're definitely going to go and... Because uh, I've got to go and do a show. So, uh, thank you so much, Jared. I really appreciate you having me here. And I appreciate you being part of the show. Thanks for doing what you do. Will. Without you